The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Madam Clerk, will you please call the roll? Council President Pro Tem Tate. Here. Council Member Durhaw. Well, Member Durhaw did send a memo indicating that he would be absent today. Council Member Johnson. Present. Mr. Chair, you have a quorum. Thank you. We have a quorum, which means we're now in session. Uh, chair entertains a moment. Uh, <laughs> chair entertains a motion to approve the minutes, please. Motion. Thank you so much. There's a motion to approve the minutes from the last committee meeting. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. I want to let folks know we do have uh, two discussions today in addition to one public hearing. Uh, and the public hearing will take place at 10 15. Uh, we will go into uh, public comment at this moment to allow for those who are here in person as well as those who are online to provide any comments that they have for this committee at this time. So if you're seeking to provide comment to this body, please raise your hand now. If you're looking to provide comment to this body, please raise your hand now in general public comment going once going twice, going three times. The collection of co public comments are now closed. Uh, good morning, Mr. Singletary. How are you today? Well, Mr. Chair and yourself? Good, good. Uh, how many callers do we have in, uh, on, online, please? Online, we have three callers beginning with Ms. Karen Winston. Uh, okay. Before we go online, we always like to clear the uh, deck here in the Committee of the Whole. So uh, who do we have? I saw a hand up. Allow the gentleman to come forward. We give everyone today two minutes for general public comment, and we'll wait until the clock appears on the screen. It's this one. Bell's off. All right. Uh, sir, you have two minutes. The floor is yours. <clears throat> okay, I come before you today um, to clip, set the record straight. Now, the other day at the uh, community charter mandated meeting, um, Crafty Mike decided, I asked the question, I posed the question, how was a fraction of the millage used to determine the state assessed equivalent, which was used to determine the, was added to the state equalized value to determine the debt limit? They used a fraction of the actual millage. The law calls for the millage to be used in that equation. Now, Crafty Mike decided to throw something out there. He didn't answer my question, and then he alluded to the fact that I had some kind of court situation litigation going on against the city, which is totally false and bogus, and uh, I, don't, I don't respect that. You know, I'm 40 years out here in the city of Detroit. My reputation is all 100 across all the board at every level, city, state, and federal. And uh, <clears throat> for him to put that out there is bold business. Now, the city of Detroit is way over the debt limit. They issuing illegal bonds. The city council needs to stop all the illegal bond payments. And you, <clears throat> James E. Tate, your name is on some of those bonds that have been issued illegally, and you approving the illegal, the illegal bond payments on the interest that's putting a burden on the tax citizens. 
Now, Mr. Malik Shelton been coming down here with this information, providing it to the council. Y'all been ignoring it. Y'all can no longer ignore the fact that the city of Detroit is involved in the biggest municipal bond fraud in the history of the United States of America. It's without question. And the answer is, how did you use a fraction of the millet to come up with the debt limit? And I want that question answered. Thank you so much. Uh, we shall now go to our public comment remotely. Who's our first caller, please? First caller, Ms. Karen Winston. Karen Winston, thank you for joining us. You have two minutes. The floor is yours. Ms. Karen Winston, are you there? Yes, hello? Yes, ma'am. The floor is yours. Yes, good morning. Um, I'd like to speak on a couple things uh, today. Uh, as it relates to our workforce development uh, and our HR department, it's my understanding that HR, human resources, would be responsible for recruitment and training. And I don't understand how we have two separate, possibly more, because I understand the police department, you know, seems like the water department, everybody recruits for themselves. So how I'm trying to understand how that works and how does that um, increase the um, you know, employment of the city of Detroit residents? Because it seems to me that that's part of our our being administration's responsibility, is to um, you know employ and among other things to make sure we have gainful employment and we don't just mean service jobs we don't just mean waiters and or or sign spinners we don't mean things like that we mean apprenticeships. Now in the 80s we had many plenty opportunities for apprenticeships and I know that because I was a, a grantee of one. So I don't know why we're not hiring our own apprentices. Why are we depending on contractors to hire, uh, to train our apprentices? And we can do this all in-house. It's not rocket science because we've done it before. We can just look back at the records um, and see how we handled that. So I think that would be uh, much better for the residents if we don't have to depend you know, on external sources to hire and train our people. We're supposed to reduce redundancy in our government by having your workforce development and having your HR, that just divides and, and not, uh, it's not inclusive and it's not, uh, you know, constructive. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't result anything. Of all of the opportunities that uh, workforce development has um, allowed, none have come to fruition. Very few in comparison to the numbers. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, next caller, please. The next caller is caller ending in 711. Caller ending in 711. Thank you for joining us. The floor is yours. You have two minutes. Caller ending in 711. Are you there? Good morning. Good morning. Caller, are you there? Let's start. Let's stop the clock for him. We'll go back and allow him. Good morning. Good morning. Start his clock over. Malik Shelton. Um, first of all, I'd like to to say that that uh, Michigan Transportation Fund bond, an MTF bond that was issued in 2017, regardless of the information that was uh, given by the LPD division that they got from John Neglick, I'm sure, um, that requires a notice of referendum. 
I'm not going to explain in detail right now why it does require a notice of referendum because it would take too much time and I only have two minutes, but it does. And I'm going to, I'm going to have a written reply ready for the council by next week, exposing um, the misstatements in that LPD report that Mr. Whitaker probably got from the office of the chief financial officer, John Naglick's office. I want to talk about this uh, the, uh, newly formed Detroit Demolition Department that's using unlimited tax general obligation bond funds. You cannot, Duggan cannot use voter approved unlimited tax general obligation bond funds to set up a whole city department and pay that city department to finance it through the bond funds. That's unlawful. You cannot do that. You cannot use bond funds, long term bond funds voter-approved bond funds to spend on city day-to-day operations or for a city department. That money is supposed to go come out of the uh, city's budget, general fund, for that department. In, in that case, everybody would be issuing, uh, I mean, every city would be issuing UTGO bonds and setting up departments and funding it out of the bond funds. That's totally illegal. Some of those bond funds are taxable and some of them are tax exempt and also there's federal rules and regulations uh pursuant to thank you so much our uh, next caller please the next and final caller is miss dorothy Bennick. miss dorothy Bennick, thank you for joining us the floor is yours you have two minutes good morning I am here as a resident and secretary of the East End Corktown Block Club, and I'm here to address the Red Arrow Loss Brownfield Project. We are in favor of it. We want to make sure that that building remains as a historical building in the oldest neighborhood in Detroit, and we appreciate your attention to this matter. Thank you. Thank you. And just want to let you know, we're actually about to get into that discussion very shortly. Uh, and you will have an opportunity to, again, further state your support uh, during the public comment section at that time. Thank you so much. And that now ends our general public comment. Uh, Member Johnson, we got a few minutes before the 10 to 15 discussion, uh, excuse me, the 10 15 public hearing. Uh, so if we can first, let me call. Uh, if there are any uh, taxing jurisdictions that would like to speak before this body that uh, regarding their fiscal, the fiscal impact of their entity uh, regarding the approval and the amended and restated brownfield plan that is before us concerning the Red Arrow development that the resident just mentioned, uh, please make yourself known now. If there's anyone, any taxing jurisdiction that is present that has any implications regarding the fiscal impact of the approval of the amended and restated Brownfield plan that is before us today concerning Red Arrow development. Please make yourself known now. Seeing none, we shall move forward. Uh, Member Johnson, again, we do have a few minutes before the 1015 discussion, so let's see if we can sneak a few of our unfinished business items in. Uh, is there a motion? Uh, to take line items 8.1 and 8.2 together, please, for so discussion. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Line item 8.1, status of council member Angela Whitfield Calloway submitting, excuse me, relative 
excuse, submitting memorandum relative to statement on developer accountability and enforcement. Uh, we did have an opportunity to speak to a member uh, Callaway's office and they're requesting a receive and file. Is there a motion? Motion to receive and file. As a motion to receive and file, line item 8.1, seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Line item 8.2, status of Council President Mary Sheffield submitting memorandum relative to resolution urging the adoption of local rent control. Uh, we did receive confirmation from Council President's office that they are okay with what was provided to them and are seeking for this body to receive and file. Is there a motion? So moved. There's a motion to receive and file line item 8.2. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Line item 8.3, status of the Office of Contracting and Procurement, submitting resolution authorization for contract number 6004055-A1. This is uh, to provide an amendment to the scope for eviction protection canvassing services. Uh, motion to discuss, please. Discussion. Thank Mo you. Move to discuss. Sorry, Mr. Chair. No, that's okay. No worries. Uh, so motion to discuss on this item. We did have an opportunity to speak with Office of Contract and Procurement, and they have uh, a few issues that they have to resolve concerning this particular contract. Uh, they are requesting for us to remove this item from the contract to allow them to resubmit properly. Is there a motion? Mr. Chair, just want to um, state, so I know that this is in regards to the properties that are um, potentially facing for foreclosure this year. Um, <coughs> excuse me, and time is of the essence, so hopefully this is coming back to us very soon so that we can do the necessary outreach. Um, but motion to remove line item 8.3. There's a motion to remove line item 8.3, and they did indicate that they were going to turn this around pretty quickly and get it back to us. So um, we'll give them an opportunity. We're going to hold them accountable to that. There's a motion to remove line item 8.3 from the agenda. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. All right, that takes us to the 1015 public hearing. We'd now like to call the 1015 public hearing with the parties who are participating in the 1015 public hearing. Please queue up. The 1015 public hearing is regarding, let me get back here on my agenda. There we go. Approval of the Brownfield plan for the city of Detroit Brownfield Redevelopment Authority for Red Arrow Development. For the parties who are participating in today's uh, public hearing, uh, when you see yourselves on the screen, please introduce yourselves for the record. Good morning, Mr. Chair. Derek Head, LPD. Morning, sir. Next. Good morning, Cora Kapler, Detroit Economic Growth Corporation and the Detroit Brownfield Redevelopment Authority. Good morning. Next. Seth Herkowitz, Hunter Pasture. Good morning. I'm Matthew Kalt with Oxford Capital Group. Good morning. Is that everyone? All right, if there's any others who will be joining us, we'll give them an opportunity to speak uh, at that time when they need to. Uh, who would like to begin the presentation? Um, I will begin, Mr. Chair. Is it all right if I share my screen? Yes, ma'am. The floor is yours. Thank you. <clears throat> all right. 
Um, first, I will start with um, what is a brownfield plan? So a brownfield plan uses tax increment financing or TIF to reimburse developers for costs that they have to pay to redevelop land and properties that they wouldn't otherwise have to pay if they were to develop on an undeveloped site um, outside of the city. TIF is used to help level the playing field the redevelopment of contaminated, blighted, obsolete, and historic properties within the city. At its simplest, TIF works by freezing taxes at the current undeveloped value of the property, which continues to be paid by the developer and received by all taxing entities. The developer captures the increase in property taxes from the renovated property, which is paid back over several years for costs they paid related to environmental cleanup, demolition, obsolete utilities, and other eligible costs. Once the approved eligible costs under the plan are repaid, the Brownfield plan sunsets and the full taxes for the property are then received by all government entities. Um, the chart on the screen um, also models and neighborhood enterprise zone tax abatement on the property. Um, and the yellow bars show the developers tax capture, which doesn't begin until year 16 when the neighborhood enterprise zones begins the phase out and they expect to be reimbursed over eight years. The blue bars to the far right on the chart show the full tax capture by all taxing authorities at, after the expiration of the Brownfield plan. Oxford Perennial Corktown Propco 2 LLC is the project developer for this project for this Brownfield plan, which consists of one parcel with an address of 1567 Church Street, which is bounded by Church Street to the north, 10th Street to the west, an alleyway to the south, and a, a newly constructed parking garage to the east in the Corktown neighborhood. This property is considered to be eligible property for a brownfield plan because the property is a historic resource. The property was developed in 1894 as the John Whitaker planing mill and in 1916 the building was expanded to the current footprint. From the 1920s to the 1970s the building was occupied by the Red Arrow Bottling Works. The project includes the redevelopment of the property into a residential development, including approximately 22 units. The breakdown of those um, is anticipated to be one studio, 16 one bedroom units and five two bedroom units. At least 10% of the units will be designated as affordable at 60% of the area median income or AMI. The development also includes eight integrated parking spaces, tenant storage and amenity space. It's currently anticipated that construction will begin this year and active eligible activities will be completed within 18 months. The total investment for this project is estimated to be 11.9 million and the developer is requesting tax increment financing or TIF reimbursement of approximately $1,207,400. The eligible activities include department specific activities, demolition, lead and asbestos abatement, infrastructure improvements, site preparation, a request for interest, and the development, preparation, and implementation of a brownfield plan and Act 381 work plan. As previously stated, the developer is pursuing additional incentives, which includes approval of a neighborhood enterprise zone or PA 147 tax abatement. There will be approximately 64 temporary construction jobs and three permanent jobs are expected to be created by this project. A DBRA local public hearing was held on Wednesday, January 4th, 2023 via Zoom and the minutes from that meeting are included in the packet submitted to council. We also received three additional support letters for this project from the Corktown Business Association, the Corktown Historical Society, and the East End Corktown Block Club, and those were distributed to council members on February 1st. This concludes the DBRA presentation to this honorable body, 
and I will turn it over to the developer to provide more information on the project. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> through, the, through the chair, good morning. Um, my name is Seth Herkowitz. Uh, as referenced, I'm a partner and principal at Hunter Pasture. Uh, we're co-developing the redevelopment of the downtown storage building uh, known as the Red Arrow Loft Project with Oxford Capital Group uh, and the Forbes Company. And we're the same sponsorship as the Godfrey Hotel uh, and the Perennial Corktown Project, which was formerly known as Michigan and Church Street. Also joining me on the call today is Matt Calton, Vice President of Oxford Capital Group, Brett Stunts of SME, uh, and Sheila Cockrell of Crossroads Consulting. We're obviously appreciative of the opportunity uh, to present our Red Arrow project to the Planning and Economic Development Committee today. Uh, for purposes of our discussion, I just want to briefly highlight uh, first the design and programming of the Red Arrow project. I want to speak to our community engagement efforts and then discuss our expected economic impact and workforce development strategy. So what you see on the screen here is an aerial view of historic court town. Uh, you can see Michigan Avenue identified by the brick pavers. Uh, we're looking Southwest, as you can see Michigan Central in the distance. Uh, we were before this body and received city council approval both in 2020 for the Godfrey Hotel project and in 2021 for the perennial court town project. Uh, first, you can see our seven story, 227 key Godfrey Hotel at Michigan and 8th Street. The Godfrey Hotel's on schedule for substantial completion and occupancy uh, this summer of 2023. You may recall that as part of our uh, executed tier two community benefits agreement for the Godfrey Hotel, we committed to address uh, community concerns related to parking by building an adjacent 213 space parking garage. Uh, you can see the newly built uh, parking garage here in view located at Church and Trumbull. Uh, the garage is nearing substantial completion this month uh, and thus we've now met the important obligation uh, under the tier two agreement for the Godfrey project. Uh, the garage is gonna service both the Godfrey Hotel and the perennial court town projects and any overflow from the Red Arrow project. Uh, next, you can see at the corner of Michigan and 10th Street, our seven story mixed use perennial court town apartment building. The perennial project includes 188 apartment units, seven townhomes, 12,000 square feet of retail and the parking deck. The apartment building superstructure was recently completed and the building's on track for substantial completion this year. Uh, the perennial project formerly known as Michigan and Church was subject to a tier one community benefits agreement that was adopted by council in July of 2021. And one of the critical commitments that was memorialized in the tier one community benefits agreement was historic preservation. And more specifically that we preserve the downtown storage building. If we could go to the next slide, please. This is a photo of the downtown storage building in its existing condition. Uh, as Cora alluded to, it has a storied history, much like our Godfrey site, which formerly served as the location of uh, the former city cab in Detroit Lions headquarters. Uh, here, this site was the Red Arrow bottling plant. And, and to pay homage to that history, we've decided to name the building the Red Arrow Lofts, and that's been supported by the community. Next slide, please. For context, this is another aerial view of historic Corktown. You can see the Red Arrow project. It's identified in yellow and labeled storage building as that's its previous use. And you can also see the proximity to our other Corktown projects. Next slide, please. This is a rendering of the future Red Arrow building after restoration. Again, we're making an $11.9 million investment into this project. The building's 32,000 square feet. Upon completion, the program will include 22 rental apartments and eight dedicated parking spaces. Uh, as I mentioned before, any additional parking needs can be met in our adjacent private parking garage. 
Uh, the building will have 10% of the rental units set aside at 60% AMI. They'll be mixed throughout the building. Um, for background, as part of our dialogue with the Neighborhood Advisory Council at Perennial Court Town, uh, we were directed to have a deeper uh, affordability level beyond 80%, and therefore 10% of the units at 60% AMI was agreed upon and documented in that Tier 1, and therefore we carried that 60-10 ratio into the Red Arrow project. Uh, we're also cognizant that parking costs also impact affordability, and as such, we intend to discount our parking at commensurate percentage for the parking spaces assigned to the affordable units. Next slide, please. The collective um, feedback and engagement with all the stakeholders, uh, including the community and council throughout our various court town projects really has been instrumental uh, and our projects are better as a result of that collective input that we've received to date. Here we've participated in five community related meetings uh, for the Red Arrow project. Those included initial design kickoff meetings with members of the Business Association, Black Clubs, Historic Society, and then select members of the Neighborhood Advisory Council. And then subsequently, we had meetings with the community at large, uh, as well as the Historic, so Historic Society and the Corktown Business Association. Uh, in addition to the community meetings that I just described, we also had two public hearings for the Historic District Commission, and we also participated in a local public hearing and community advisory council hearing as part of our engagement with the Detroit Brownfield Redevelopment Authority. Next slide, please. Beyond our discussion on historic preservation and community engagement, our project has important uh, economic benefits and implications, including an increase in the base taxable value from its current value of about 200,000 up to $2.9 million. On the job front, as noted, we'll create 67 new jobs, including temporary construction jobs and full-time equivalent related employment uh, related to property management. On the workforce strategy, our contractors, Chrisman Norcon, which is the same firm that's overseeing construction efforts at Godfrey and Perennial. Uh, for further reference, Chrisman also serves as the general contractor at Michigan Central. Uh, Chrisman has a local headquarters and news center and has extensive Detroit related experience. And like we've done on previous projects, we'll notify local neighborhood organizations of work scopes, bidding opportunities and any employment opportunities with our subcontractor base. For full-time employment, we'll work with Detroit at Work as our primary staffing partner, uh, like we're doing for the Godfrey Hotel project. Uh, lastly, you know, as Cora mentioned, we're here, um, if we could just go to the next slide, Cora. We're here respectfully seeking um, your recommended approval of our $1.2 million Brownfield TIF. Um, as you know, um, our normal market conditions, it's very challenging to fully capitalize uh, ground up construction in Detroit uh, with the precipitous rise in interest rates, the current state of capital markets, along with costs associated with renovating a historic structure. Frankly speaking, this is a project that is unable to achieve viability without the necessary incentives. And even then it is very stressed. Um, before I turn the floor back to the chair, I just wanna briefly highlight uh, a few of the important benefits that will result from our development, including uh, increased tax base, support of local business through our increased residential population, uh, revitalization and best use of an underutilized property, uh, enhanced walkability and pedestrian connectivity, needed infrastructure improvements uh, and job creation. So with that, we appreciate your review of our project um, and we're happy to answer any questions uh, that you may have. Thank you. Thank you, who would like to proceed? I would, Mr. Chair, please. All right, Mr. Head, the floor is yours, sir. 
Mr. Chair, with your permission? Yep, the floor is yours, sir. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This particular project is incentivized through the Brownfield Redevelopment Financing Act 381 of 1996, which provides tax incentives in the form of tax increment financing to develop brownfield properties in the area at or which there has been a release or threat of release or disposal of a hazardous substance. Oxford Perennial Corktown Propco 2 LLC is the project developer of the Red Arrow Redevelopment Brownfield Redevelopment Plan. The eligible property consists of one parcel located at 1567 Church on 0.37 acres on the northwestern section of a city block in the Corktown neighborhood in southwest Detroit. As Ms. Kapler indicated, the property is bounded by Church Street to the north, 10th Street to the west, and Alley to the south. The property is adjoined by a parking lot to the east, a residential development to the south, and a commercial development to the north. The development is located in the Corktown Historic District, consists of the rehabilitation of existing two-story industrial building to a multi-family apartment units and indoor parking. The two-story multi-family residential building will total approximately 32,000 square feet, including approximately 16,000 square feet of apartments, seven units on the ground floor, which consists of one bedroom, one, I mean, six one-bedroom apartments and one studio apartment and 15 units on the second floor consisting of 10 one-bedroom apartments and five two-bedroom apartments with at least 10% of the apartments designated as affordable as 60% AMI. And as the developer indicated, the developer agreed to the resident's suggestion to set aside 10% of the units at 60% AMI. Their earlier plans accounted for 20% of the units at 80% AMI. The developers also agreed to preserve the old sawmill, which was constructed in 1894, and correct a commemorative plaque to recognize the historical significance of the site. And also they agreed to ensure that Detroiters get the first crack at the construction jobs. The developer will also include approximately 6,400 6, square feet of ground level integrated parking garage space, which is eight spaces, with the remaining approximately 8,600 square feet consisting of tenant storage, a maintenance room, amenity space, etc. The site development also entails infrastructure improvements, including sidewalks, brick paver, walks, curbs, asphalt paving and landscaping in the public right of way. It is anticipated that this project will create three full-time jobs and 64 temporary construction jobs. The developer is requesting a $1,218,631 TIF reimbursement with the overall value of the plan estimated at $1,611,918, which includes local brownfield cost. The developer is also seeking the approval of a PA-147, a neighborhood enterprise zone, which if subsequently approved, the incentive may run for a term of 17 years, given that the preserved property is eligible for an extended term pursuant to the NEZ Act, 
due to the fact that the building is a qualified historic building. The estimated capital investment in this project is approximately $11.9 million. In addition to the taxes that are projected to be generated and captured, there will be some additional, additional taxes that will not be captured. And those additional taxes that will be generated but not captured will go to city debt in the amount of $214,105, the Wayne County Zoo in the amount of $2,379, and the Wayne County DIA in the amount of $4,759. And Mr. Chair, that concludes my report, and I thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Head, um, and everyone who gave the presentation, participated in the presentation today. Uh, we now go to Q&A. Member Johnson, any questions? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Just um, want to clarify a couple of things. So it was indicated that there are 64 anticipated construction jobs for the project. Um, it seems like a maybe a, a smaller project. I um, would like to understand where the estimated 64 construction jobs came from. And it was also mentioned that the focus would be on um, identifying Detroiters who work in the field of construction to secure those jobs. So can you talk a little bit more about that process and how you plan to do that? Yes, Council Member Johnson, I'm happy to, to discuss both issues that you raised. Number one, as it relates to construction-related employment, uh, <clears throat> we work very closely with our general contractor, along with our in-house construction teams, both at Oxford and at uh, Hunter Pasture to sit down and put together a staffing plan uh, along with an expected uh, subcontractor base count uh, along with their previous history and expectation in terms of the scope of construction, they're able to determine the expected amount of jobs on the site. So that's how we came up with the 64. We believe that to be a conservative number. Uh, number two, um, as it relates to Detroit-based employment on the contracting side, what I can speak to is our performance as it relates to um, awards of construction related uh, investment on our prior two projects within the Corktown community. I think when we look at what we've invested in terms of dollars spent between Detroit and Wayne County headquartered businesses on the perennial Corktown project, it's approximately 44% 40 of our total direct costs. In real numbers, that's about $23 million that we have invested into Detroit related businesses. We understand and recognize there's always room for growth on that number. Uh, we look forward to, to making positive contributions and helping to build that, that Detroit base of subcontractor work. But we are proud of what's been achieved to date. Um, I think when you look at total um, expected Detroit based employees as part of our EO um, requirements as what's been submitted to CREO, I think perennial court town is about 42.5%. Again, there's always room for improvement on those numbers, but we're proud of, of that percentage uh, and what's been achieved there. Um, we continue to have uh, extended outreach within the community uh, we, where we can provide connections between our subcontractor base uh, and local neighborhood uh, residents that are interested in employment. Um, and we're happy to, to work collaboratively with the city in any manner to help um, further our collective goals. Thank you. Um, can you, I'm not sure that you identified the anticipated completion timeframe for the project. 
Yeah, thank you. So we're obviously working very uh, diligently to fully capitalize and finance this project, given the, the challenging uh, conditions that we're in today. Our goal and expectation is that we'd be in a position to start this project later this year uh, with an expected construction timeframe of, of between 12 and 16 months thereafter. Uh, so we would hopefully be in a position to be done by Q4 uh, 2024. Okay, thank you. Uh, and lastly, I know you indicated, it was indicated on the slide, uh, stormwater detention. Of course, uh, GSI, Green Stormwater Infrastructure, is something that's near and dear to me because of how it impacts uh, residents throughout my district. So can you talk a little bit more about uh, what your intentions are? Yeah, th thank you, Council Member. That's an important infrastructure investment is critical to our overall uh, approach throughout all of our Corktown projects, including Red Arrow. Um, you know, our project will meet uh, the city's post-construction stormwater management ordinance. Um, and really the primary objectives uh, of our site stormwater management plan uh, will meet the requirements of the relevant water quality and, and quantity-based performance standards. And just to give you uh, a couple examples um, that we would match natural conditions for peak flow and volume for the 90th percentile storm event. Uh, we would ensure that our peak flow rate of stormwater runoff from the site shall not exceed uh, the pre-development peak flow rate for the two-year average recurrence uh, or 24-hour storm. Uh, our investment also included beyond a red arrow in terms of perennial uh, new underground stormwater detention that will su substantially reduce uh, the flow of stormwater into the combined sewer system. So we're very cognizant of the importance of this issue, and we believe that our projects are providing uh, a net positive contribution. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Johnson. A couple of quick questions. Kind of want to build on the uh, questions that you asked, uh, Member Johnson, and just want to make sure that I'm very clear. Many times, just in government, we use the term uh, contractors to mean the uh, entity that's hiring the employees. Um, sometimes, certainly in our private life, we mention the contractor as the actual employee. So uh, to the developer, when you indicated that 40%, I believe you, you indicated, 40% of the contractors that you all utilize, they are Detroit-based. Uh, are you talking about employees or the actual companies? That's the company. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. sorry. All right. So are, are we talking about the actual employees or are we talking about the uh, any subcontracting companies or vendors that are uh, Detroit-based? The floor is yours. Yeah, so sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, the answer to your question is that includes all the subcontractor base as well, which is critically important. So we hire, to your point, a general contractor that oversees the management uh, of the entire job site and all of the subcontractor trades. But the, the number that I referenced, the investment of the approximately 44% or $23 million of direct costs included all the subcontractor base. And there's key Detroit-based businesses on that list. Um, I could reference a few of them here off the top of my head. Uh, Cash Sheet Metal, uh, Christian Detroit Roofing, uh, Brinker Team, um, our Mason, Dixon Masonry, uh, City Carpet, Universal Glass, Jeremore Plumbing, and there's others. Those are the ones that pop in my head. Um, but, but making an investment, and I guess this is a more global issue, in the subcontractor base is really critical to help grow Detroit-based participation, um, both on the employee side and on the employer side. 
And, and again, just to get a ballpark, what's your anticipation for this particular project? I would presume that we'd be in a similar percentage. We have not identified um, or bid out this project at this point, so it's difficult for me to say. What I'd like to look at is, you know, past precedent. Um, we're building across the street. Those are the numbers that I just provided. Uh, there's a lot of efficiencies in, in taking a similar team and applying them into a new project. Uh, some of the work scopes will be different here given the historic renovation, but I would use that as a general ballpark um, as to where we are. Okay. And so I see we have three FTEs. Uh, what are those positions and what's the uh, goal, the intended goal to hire uh, potentially Detroiters in those positions? Yeah, that's another good question. So, so obviously we look at this globally too. Um, we have our Godfrey project, which will create significant amount of Detroit based jobs. And we're working with Detroit at work as our prior priority staffing partner. We have had discussions with them as recently as this fall, and we will be re-engaging them this spring to put together a detailed and comprehensive uh, workforce hiring strategy as we prepare for the opening this summer of the hotel. Uh, as it relates to the apartment buildings, we look at both Perennial and Red Arrow together. Uh, there's property management, which is a critical part of, of executing these projects. Uh, there's less in terms of total number of, of employees in those scenarios, but we will also, as I mentioned earlier, commit to working with Detroit at work to help ensure that those are staffed um, and priorities given to Detroit-based residents. Okay, maybe I missed it in your, your explanation. Again, what are the three FTE positions? So there will be property management related, they, um, whether it be on-site uh, maintenance, um, uh, janitorial, uh, there will be property management in terms of staffing to operate the building. Um, so. Okay. Have, have you worked with oh. Detroit at Works before at your other leasing projects? Leasing as well. Lease, I'm sorry, leasing as well. Thank you, Matt. Okay. Have, have you all worked with Detroit at Works in your other projects? Uh, Godfrey is the, first, um, is the first project in which we are working directly with Detroit at Work. Okay. Uh, I have requested a, a document. We've actually seen it, and I'm looking for additional information. Um, so we're going to be really digging deeper into that issue because we ha have developers and, and this is not just for you, this is a, a global issue, we have developers who have quote unquote worked with Detroit at Works, but we have not seen, you know, these crazy numbers that we would hope to see of Detroiters actually uh, being hired. And that's not to point the fingers at anyone, that's just pointing out the fact that um, we're not seeing the numbers that we would expect to see, especially uh, with this uh, amount of investment that we're, we're um, engaging. The other question I would have is just if we can make it real plain for folks. A lot of times we use the AMI 60%, 60%, 30%, 80%. Let's make it plain on what the uh, rents will look like for the folks who are watching today. Yeah, I think that on a, a market rate, let's just use a one-bedroom unit as an example, uh, expected rental uh, on a monthly basis would be approximately $1,500. If you were to take 60% uh, AMI, that same unit, would be approximately uh, between 1,000 and 1,100 a month. So there's a significant um, discount uh, against the market condition. And like I mentioned before, we would also discount the parking as well, though those rates haven't been determined, but the discounted percentage would be uh, the same as what we would discount the actual unit. Okay, so, so we mentioned also studio. Again, one bedroom and studio, what's the studio? I have it in front of me, but I want you to Talk to the public. This is a public hearing. 
Yeah, so our studio rates would be slightly lower. Um, I believe those would be closer to, and I don't have those direct numbers up, up uh, in front of me, but I believe those numbers would be closer to uh, $1,300 and then uh, requisite, uh, at that market rate, and then requisite affordable unit would be closer uh, to, to a $900 if I'm applying the, the math correctly. And what we have in front of us was 975 uh, was provided to us. Again, just wanted to make sure the public had that yeah. information. Uh, my last question, well, potentially, is in terms of where these affordable units are going to be located in the building. Uh, I always have a stomach-churning uh, feeling when we talk about the affordable units being all on the ground floor. Uh, they should be spread out, and at least that's what it takes to get my approval. Uh, talk to us about where the affordable units will be located in this particular facility. Yeah, uh, Councilmember Tate, that's an important issue. As we've committed to in, in, in our prior um, hearings for Perennial Courttown, uh, the average person that walks in the building would have no idea whether the unit is affordable or not. They will be split up uh, throughout the building and intermixed with our market rate units. Okay, give me a better understanding what that means. That's big. So, so big they will not range. be all. They would not be all studios. Uh, they would include one bedroom units and they would be split on different floors. The building is only two stories, so they would be split on two different floors in different parts of the sections of the building. Okay. And, and different unit types as well. And, yeah. and some of the more, including some of the more um, you know, desirable, you know, quote unquote, nicer units as well. Okay. So, I, so what I'm, what I'm asking is, a, again, this is a public hearing for an approval. We're not, I need more specifics, and I'll give you an example of what I have here. In front of me, okay. it says there will be seven units on the ground floor, uh, six one-bedroom apartments, and one studio. And then you yep. have 15 units on the second floor, and yep. it breaks it down, 10 one-bedroom apartments and five two-bedroom apartments. So those are specifics. Let's talk about specifics, not just what, what the goal, intended goal is. What are we mapped out, planned? Because, again, this is based on my approval, and I'm sure my other colleagues as well. Yeah, so, so we would definitely be willing to commit to one, one bedroom on the main floor, and then one, one bedroom on the second floor. Um, we have not identified within each one of those floors where the affordable unit would go, um, but, but they would be placed and intermixed with the market rate units. Okay. Well, to the DEGC, this is a question that I always ask, um, and to the folks who are bringing this proposal to us, the developer may not know, but to not have that information, uh, knowing that it's a question that is always asked, uh, certainly uh, if not during the, uh, during the meeting that we're having in, in the committee, because typically it's already provided to us in advance, uh, I will not be able personally to support this if we don't have any details um, specifically determining where these affordable units are going to be located. Um, so I'll just go from there. And we shall now go into public comment. If there's anyone from the public who would like to speak on this item, please raise your hand now. Going once, going twice, going three times. The collection of public comments have now concluded. We're going to give everyone one minute uh, public comment during the public hearing today. We're going to start with the folks who are in the uh, room. And I saw one hand. Sir, if you can come forward.
One minute, huh? Okay. One minute is exactly what you're gonna get, and there's just a clock right there. Hold on. One, one minute is exactly what I'm gonna get. Y'all ready? Go ahead. Floor start. Yours. Okay. Well, I just heard the gentleman articulate what it was, in terms he, well, he mentioned general contractor, and me understanding the importance of the storm drain um, combination runoff. Um, in that field, you know, I I laid ninety percent of the main line down um, the Davidson Freeway, so I'm working for various contractors, Dan's, uh, Steve over at Rickman. So I know the importance of a general contractor. Now, if the DECG, that skirt, stop, stop the brakes on everything. The DEGC um, needs to have, an, there needs to be agreement with the general contractor because all this subcontractor nonsense I know from experience that the general contractor when he subcontracts out, unless there's agreement in place, they don't necessarily hire the uh, minorities. They hire or bring in um, people from outside that come from up north, Thank other you. places, to perform the work, and Thank the Detroiters are left out the equation. Thank you. Uh, how many callers do we have, and who do we have first? Uh, Mr. Chair, we have six callers, beginning with Ms. Karen Winston. All right, Ms. Winston, uh, the floor is yours. You have one minute. Yes, hello? We can hear you. Yes, ma'am. Okay, great. Um, I'd like to ask about how many of the units are going to be uh, ADA compliant. And uh, my math tells me that out of 20, 22 units, we're going to have two that are going to be uh, priced at AMI. So of those two, are any of those AMI compliant? Um, I also would like to know, as relates to the executive order, how many times has this company been fined? And um, if so, how many fines have you paid as it relates to, we're not talking about dollars, we're talking about people. How many, you know, we're not talking about how much money you spent. If you could spend a billion dollars on this contract and, you know, maybe it's a 500,000 on the other one. So I want to know how many people are being um, um, hired, you know, residents, and what are we doing to correct that situation if we're not making that number? Because every contractor comes on here and says the same thing. So how much have you paid into the fine for noncompliance, and what is your plan to help us correct that? Thank you. I'll listen for answers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, next caller, please. Uh, Mr. Chair, my apologies. That was five callers, not six callers. Next caller is Mr. Mark Crowley. Mr. Mark Crowley, thank you for joining us. The floor is yours. You have one minute. Yes, can you hear me? We can. Okay, uh, I, I'm Mark Crowley. I live at uh, 1820 Church Street. So we're right in the middle of all of the stuff that's going on around us. Uh, in regard to significant infrastructure improvements, the streets around the storage building, there are three sinkholes in, in those streets and they haven't become, uh, haven't been improved with all the heavy traffic running over them. I'd like to hear what the plans are to remediate those, either by the either by Hunter Pastor or by the city. Uh, I know some from the city could chime in on that, I'm sure. And also, uh, why was the address to the storage building changed from 1551 to 1569? Just curious. Before you go, sir, uh, have you have you reached out to anyone about those sinkholes? Just FYI. Yes, the city's the city is aware of them. They've been covered. They've been uh, piled at different times, but they, and like I said, they've only gotten worse with okay. the, with the vehicle traffic. And where are they located again? Uh, there are two on church street, uh, right in the middle of uh, church between church 
I'm sorry, between 10th and Trumbull on church, there's one, and then right at the corner of 10th Street in church, there's one, and then there's also another one around the corner toward the southwest uh, corner of the storage building uh, at near the alley um, be, that runs behind the building. And that was another question, if that alley is going to be improved at all. All right, so what we're going to do is because the folks who would be able to answer that question, they're not here. We would have to uh, further that. Uh, I have motion to my team. We're going to get that uh, information to the department and see what can be done uh, in the long term or short term, regardless of what happens with the approval or uh, of this particular project. Thank you. Next caller, please. Next caller is Ms. Ruth Johnson. Ms. Ruth Johnson, thank you for joining us. You have one minute. The floor is yours. Good morning, Ruth Johnson from Community Development Advocates of Detroit. I will not comment on the specific project, but instead I want to uh, inquire about access to information about this project. Um, I was listening and trying to take notes about affordability, accessibility, location, size of those units, uh, and as far as accessibility, whether market rate or uh, affordable. It would be helpful if it seems like council members have access to some um, information that I did not find on the city website. So I'm curious what information is available to someone like myself or other members of the public, because I just have a lot of difficulty trying to understand things verbally, take notes, get it down accurately. There's a lot of good information that was shared, uh, mm -hmm. but I can't catch it all. Uh, in the, these presentations and Q&A discussions. So I thank you for providing that information to the public. Thank you. Thank you. Next caller, please. Next caller is Ms. Carol Hughes. Ms. Carol Hughes, thank you for joining us. The floor is yours. You have one minute. Uh, good afternoon, uh, body uh, and panel. May I speak? Uh, you can. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Carolyn Hughes, and I am speaking on TIFFs, and this does not solve the problems that we have in housing. It uh, essentially gives us two or three units when we have, as discussed yesterday, 27,000 people that are expected to face evictions. Um, while it makes uh, Corktown look better, it doesn't achieve what we need to achieve, and that is tax revenue we need to achieve. And if it's but for that they need these tax revenue abatements, then maybe we need to look somewhere else for projects. Um, it's not providing enough housing for the bang that we're spending. Um, I'm not sure, was this the 1992 NEZ, or did it have anything to do with a prior uh, designation? Thank you. Next caller. The next and final caller is Ms. Marguerite Maddox, noting there were two additional hands raised after public comment was cut off. Thank you. Ms. Marguerite Maddox, thank you for joining us. Uh, the floor is yours regarding the 1015 public hearing. Yes. Good morning and thank you for letting um, I have two questions. Why is the construction not working? And number two is, 
in the um, the feed, uh, so I apologize for that, but I believe you were asking uh, about universal design at the facility? Yeah. Ms. Manica, are you there? Yeah. Okay, we're, we're, can you repeat that? That, yeah. that, that? that was it? Okay, we'll make sure we get that responded to. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. You're welcome. And that takes us to the end of our uh, public comment for the 1015 public hearing. Uh, we now want the developers to answer some of those questions that came before uh, them and us regarding this particular project. And we can start with the ADA compliance um, as well as this universal design that uh, Ms. Marguerite Matta brought about. Um, so. Thank you through the chair. Um, in terms of ADA, our building will be compliant with both code and law. Uh, more specifically, as we think about both perennial Corktown uh, and Red Arrow combined, we'll have 15 ADA units. Uh, we're fortunate that the existing Red Arrow building provides for wide open spans in the common area for easy movability uh, through the building. And then the majority of programming for residents is on the first floor and easily accessible. Uh, through the parking area and the other entry points. But I think when we're talking about ADA uh, and accept accessibility really in a broader sense, which is what I heard in the comments, it, it's also important to think about the conditions outside of the building and the improved uh, infrastructure that's gonna result from our development. We're removing and replacing uh, all of the sidewalks adjacent to the building, including new ADA ramps uh, at the corner of Church and 10th Street. The new walks will be a significant improvement over existing walks, especially along Church Street, where quite frankly, the condition was poor at best and non-compliant with current ADA. And as I mentioned earlier, the new walks and infrastructure will improve that pedestrian connectivity to adjacent residential neighborhoods, which will also be uh, an important benefit. Thank you. And there was also a question regarding any fines that your uh, company has received in the past regarding uh, any violations of the executive order uh, concerning uh, the hiring of Detroiters? Yeah, I, I would defer uh, that number to Creo. I, I don't believe that they're necessarily fines. I thought they were, I've always been described as investments uh, in future Detroit-based labor. Um, I can speak to what our um, Creo report was for uh, perennial court town, which was 42% um, in terms of qualified Detroit-based employees. Um, I think that that percentage exceeds many of the projects throughout the city of Detroit. Uh, we're proud of what's been um, what's been achieved there. Okay. Is there anyone you say you don't have anyone who can talk about your investment in that area? We don't want to call them fines. 
Yeah, I don't I don't have those specific numbers of what the the investments or the fees that we've paid uh, as part of that EO reporting. I would I would defer to Creo on that. Okay. I can only speak to what we've committed in terms of our reports that we've submitted to them as a percentage of our Detroit based uh, employees on an hourly basis. Okay. And Ms. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to add one thing to the discussion on the executive orders. Um, the DBRA, um, we don't move forward with projects with developers who are not in compliance um, with other ongoing projects. Um, so we have been in contact with Creo and the developer is in compliance with the executive orders um, on the Godfrey project and the, um, the Michigan and Church project. And I just wanted to be clear that this red arrow project is not subject to executive orders, but like I said, the DBRA does not move forward with um, with brownfield plans for projects with developers who are not in compliance on other projects. So when you say not in compliance, being in compliance means if you don't reach that number, you actually pay or you invest, as was mentioned here. So that means that you would be in compliance at that point, correct? If you do invest, as been mentioned here, as opposed to pay a, a fine. Is that correct? That's correct. You can be in compliance through employing more than the 50% or with being up to date on your investments as a result of not meeting that 50% threshold. Thank you so much. That's what I thought. All right. So my last question is regarding the tax revenue. And I think this needs to go to you, Mr. Head. Uh, there, you know, folks here, this uh, tax incentive that is before us, uh, and then they hear the but for, um, but I think what may have been missed is the uh, return on investment, if you will. So can you just briefly walk us through the return on investment uh, in the event that we approve this particular item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Chair, this, this particular project is scheduled to come before you once again when we deal with the NEZ. So when we deal with these projects that have things like a, a brownfield, with an addition with a tax abatement, that's when the return on the investment, those numbers come through. So we don't double count that because really a brownfield is really dealing more so with a undesirable site. So that's really the primary focus of this particular uh, um, project or this particular uh, incentive. So we will have those numbers the return on the investment once they come back for NEZ. So council will be dealing with this particular developer and this particular project once again. Thank you so much. Just wanted to make sure we air it out because someone asked the question. All right, uh, Member Johnson, any further on this particular item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I did want to maybe have a little more discussion about the 42% and it was brought up that um, you know, you can really impact that when the general contractor is held to a certain standard, um, recognizing that the developer is the entity that is subject to uh, the executive order, if this would apply, and I'm not sure why it doesn't. Um, but just want to make sure that as we move forward, because we know that there are a few development projects that happen in the city of Detroit that actually meet that 51% uh, of hiring Detroit residents. How do we increase that number? Uh, is it like if we're 
looking at the general contractor to hire subcontractors, which I completely understand, but is there an opportunity to look at that internal process for the developer? Will the general contractor, do they offer uh, equalization credits for Detroit-based subcontractors and things of that nature so that we start to see projects that get us over that 51% level? Um, because as Pro Tim mentioned, you know, we when we look at these projects, we anticipate being able to hire a fair percentage of Detroit residents. And, and time and time again, we fall short of that. Um, but there has to be something that we can collectively do to make sure we're increasing that number. Uh, I know several of my colleagues have been focusing on introducing the city of Detroit to uh, businesses, small businesses, uh, for them to work with the city. Uh, but however, we need to come together. I think we really should collectively work on improving that to make sure we meet that executive order for projects as we continue to move forward, especially those that are interested in a tax incentive. That was the only additional thing that I wanted to add. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. I have no, uh, any, any further, Member Johnson, is there a motion on the floor? Uh, well, before um, we entertain a motion, I know you had some reservations about getting, uh, having information at your disposal. I see Mr. Head has his hand raised. Uh, Mr. Head? Um, Mr. Chair, I don't know if this will assuage your concern, but as I indicated earlier, this project will be coming back as a NEZ. And tip, and when we have these items, such as an NEZ, which deals with residential, usually by that time, the developer has a focused plan when it comes to the affordables. And I will be, well, I'm almost certain that the developer will have a narrow plan when it comes to where these affordables are being placed. Because if you do approve this, that doesn't necessarily mean that his brown, I mean, his NEZ will be approved. So it's still subject to your approval, that upcoming neighborhood enterprise zone. So I just wanted to just share that with you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Head. I appreciate it. And you're always uh, someone who I take advice from. You've done, uh, you've guided me well uh, up to this point, and I don't think you would steer me wrong uh, today. Uh, but I do want, you know, folks to know that this is important today because it may not even be necessary for the NEZ if we uh, don't get past this particular point. Um, how soon to the developer would you be able to provide those responses to me, to this, this committee? And we're talking about yeah, the affordability, through, the placement. Yeah, of the through units. the chair, we're, we're happy to identify um, the preferred um, affordable units. I, I do want to say from a practical perspective, uh, affordable units often aren't hard coded because it depend, depends on when the qualified tenants show up and, and what is available at that time in terms of a floating pool, uh, providing more availability and optionality uh, for that potential tenant. Um, we're happy to follow any directive, provide any detailed information. We can turn that around very quickly, but I did want to also point that out as well. Okay. Member Johnson, I would be, if, if, if they can provide the information to this committee uh, by the uh, formal session, I would be okay with sending, sending this item out without recommendation. 
All right. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I just want to make sure we all have an opportunity to get our questions answered. Uh, so if there is nothing else, um, I'd like to make motion to move line item five to two formal with no recommendation. Uh, and just to let folks with discussion, just to let you know that, again, my vote and my support uh, and advocacy would depend on having that information. Um, on Tuesday, or better yet, Monday, so we can review it, and not when we get there on Tuesday. All right, there's a motion to send line item five. Again, that is the public hearing that we just had before us, the 1015 public hearing. Send it to the uh, formal session without recommendation. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you so much. This now closes out our 1015 public hearing. All right, let's get into our discussions today. We have two of them, as mentioned. Uh, we go now to our 10-10 discussion with the parties who are participating. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong one. Let me scroll down here. That is the 10-25 discussion with the parties who are participating. Please queue up. And I know we may have uh, some folks who are here in person that would that are uh, participating. If you can please come forward to and, and sit in the uh, middle section here. And because we do have quite a number of folks who uh, indicated that they wanted to speak, but no, we can actually have her come up in the middle here as a presenter. Uh, we actually uh, we have a lot of folks who, are, uh, who have joined us today. Um, we're going to have to be uh, brief, be succinct, and uh, get to the point. And I may not be able to uh, do several rounds of comments and questions uh, because, again, we do have a number of folks who have uh, joined us on this particular item. So, again, when the folks who are participating in the 1025 discussion see yourselves on the screen, please introduce yourself for the record. Um, good morning. Julie Schneider, I'm the director of the Housing and Revitalization Department, and this is the um, this is the public hearing or the presentation on affordable housing funds. Correct. Now, this is the about the shortage of accessible housing for Detroit residents with disab with disabilities. Ten twenty five. Okay. That one will be coming up though. Okay. All right. I know we have been joined uh, in the Committee of the Whole by a uh, speaker. Ma'am, if you can introduce yourself for the record. Hi, my name is Dessa Cosma. I'm a resident of District 4 and the Director of Detroit Disability Power. Thank you so much. Turn that mic a little bit closer to you, Director. Yeah, Director, tech, send it up. There you go. That should work. Okay, who else do we have joining us in the discussion online? Director Sam? Good morning. I'm Christopher Sam, the director for the Office of Disability Affairs. Good morning. Do we have any of our other speakers here joining us? Mr. Chair? Yes, sir. Uh, there are a number of speakers that are in Zoom but need to accept uh, the, the invite. Uh, Ms. Tamika Kitchen Spruce. Um, 
and uh, actually I believe that's the only one. Okay. So if you can please accept the invitation to join us, and then we can begin the converse, the discussion. Can I share my screen? One second, please. All right, so what we're going to do, um, just to give you an understanding of how we want to go about this, uh, there was a, just kind of want to talk about an article that came up in Bridge Detroit uh, sometime last year. And as mentioned, um, you know, a lot of times folks look for city council members, elected officials to know everything, but we don't always, and we need some assistance. And I saw that article uh, in Bridge Magazine, Bridge Detroit, and uh, led me to ask a few questions as well as um, spark this discussion that we're going to have today. Uh, I don't intend that we're going to solve every issue, every concern during this discussion, um, but I definitely want us to uh, have a clearer understanding of what our um, housing looks like for Detroit residents with disabilities, as well as um, the pathway that we're going to um, continue on. What are our goals? What are we looking for? What are we seeking? And how are we engaging and uh, communicating um, with that very important population of the city of Detroit? So with that said, uh, Director Snyder, thank you again for joining us. And the floor is yours. You certainly may uh, run your PowerPoint. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Are you able to see my screen? Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. Lost the Zoom screen, but I'll just, uh, I will go ahead. Um, so good morning, everyone. So um, as Council President Pro Tem Tate said, we're here today to talk and provide information about accessible housing. Um, you know, many Detroiters find themselves or their households needing accessible housing. Uh, for some, that might be a lifetime need. For others, that, that needs may arise over time. But it's a critical um, need in all cities, but especially uh, the city of Detroit. Um, so just to provide an overview of what we're um, the, the need. So uh, according to estimates from the 2021 American Community Survey, nearly 20% of Detroiters reporting having at least uh, one disability. The nature of the disabilities range across our population, which is an important consideration when thinking about accessible housing. Uh, we can see from these numbers that there is demand for accessible housing in Detroit, but there are, uh, what are the tools and laws that help to create accessible housing? Um, so there are a kind of few main uh, laws that do so. Um, so first is the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination in the sale, rental, and financing of dwellings and other housing-related activities based on disability, uh, among other protected classes. It, uh, Fair Housing Act is a um, pretty well-known law. It um, is the, the law that uh, kind of undergirds or is the, the basis of, of so much uh, federal housing policy and the existence of HUD. Um, but the Fair Housing Act generally applies to a broad range of persons and entities, including public housing agencies, property owners, landlords, housing managers, real estate agents, because it, it's really focused on um, preventing discrimination among protected classes for anybody who is operating in um, the housing 
housing space. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act is a really uh, key law when it comes to actually creating accessible housing. Um, it pertains to federally assisted programs and services. All federally assisted new construction housing developments um, need to have four the, of five or more units must construct at least 5% of the dwelling units of at least one unit, whichever is greater to be accessible for a person's mobility disabilities. Uh, an additional 2% of units that are federally assisted uh, or at least one unit, whatever is greater, must be accessible for persons with hearing or visual disabilities. Um, there are over 20,000 federally assisted housing units in Detroit, uh, but I'll note that many of them were built prior to the law's passage in 1973, and the Rehabilitation Act really is focused on construction of new housing developments. Um, finally, there is the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, the ADA, as it's more commonly known, primarily deals with the accessibility of public facilities, uh, like restaurants, hotels, parks, um, with respect to affordable housing, Title II of the ADA is often what we look to, which covers uh, housing provided by public entities. Um, Title III also requires that public and common area uses at housing developments are accessible. Um, that's important when we're asking about whether or not a building is ADA accessible because um, it what it's meaning is the public and common spaces and then basic functionality of um, housing units are what the ADA is is covering. Um, each of these laws that I've just mentioned um, also cover reasonable accommodation or modifications. So reasonable accommodations or modifications are another way that uh, housing units become accessible. Um, each of those three laws treat reasonable accommodation and modifications different. Um, and it's often on a case-by-case -case basis. So I would encourage each of you, if you are uh, thinking that a reasonable accommodation request might be made, which is often a change or adjustment, it can be in rules and policies, but it can also be in the actual um, physical structure of a, of a housing unit. Um, those laws allow for those requests to be made and sometimes the tenant is asked to pay for them or required to pay for them. Sometimes the, the owner of a property is required to pay for them. It's really on a case-by-case -case basis. And so if you are in, uh, if you're a renter in a housing development, in an apartment, and you're wondering whether or not um, you might uh, be in a situation where a reasonable accommodation or modification um, is something that um, you're seeking, I would encourage you to reach out to the Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit. Fair Housing Center of Metropolitan Detroit, like all cities is the, uh, all large cities is the um, entity that handles fair housing complaints and can provide guidance on, on rights related to uh, fair housing. Um, so those are the laws that kind of govern what your rights are, um, how what the requirements on accessibility are, um, but there are also a couple limited programs that have existed to try to uh, create housing for persons uh, with disabilities. Um, section HUD Section 811 um, is one. Um, it provides development and operating subsidies uh, to rental housing and supportive services for low-income adults with disabilities. Unfortunately, this program um, hasn't been, um, it often hasn't been funded very well. And in fact, it hasn't been active 
uh, since uh, 2011. Uh, that's at the federal level. It hasn't been funded since then. In Detroit, there are two developments that are Section 811 developments, and um, they uh, offer about 34 units. Um, additionally, and a larger program, though not um, specifically just about accessible housing, is HUD Section 202. Uh, this is, again, a loan program. It provides development and operating subsidies to rental housing uh, with supportive service for low-income elderly households. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily, because it, a program that is about um, kind of centering uh, accessibility, but it, it does in a way because it is meant to help seniors age in place. And so, um, Many of these units, uh, many of these developments are some of the more advanced um, units we have for accessibility in Detroit, but um, it can range from development to development. Um, of For HUD Section 202 in Detroit, there's been 27 of these properties offering 2,208 units. Um, in the last few years, we've actually seen the federal government start to reinvest in this program uh, and it's been reactivated or funded. We expect, uh, we are working with some projects that are considering uh, Section 202 as a financing source, which would um, bring about a greater, greater um, accessibility than the base levels that are required through the Rehabilitation Act. Um, so for this presentation, we are also asked to discuss some of the issues that we common here, commonly hear from the disability advocacy community. And for that, I will uh, turn it over to Christopher Samp. Thank you, Dr. Snyder and City Council for the opportunity to speak about uh, concern from the disability community. Um, I reached out to my community partner and I asked them the question, what are the recurring housing issues that many of the people with disability experience? So the most common response is difficulty finding affordable housing in the area they want to live in. They will need the following uh, ground level entrance or graded ramp, first floor bedrooms and bathrooms, widened doorway and hallway for wheelchair, accessible light switch, electrical outlet and thermostat and other environmental control, reinforced walls and installation of grab bar and handrails. And the second issue was the landlords uh, lack empathy or compassion for renters with disability, especially when they ask for repairs or ADA modification. And then the third one is the need to enforce the fair housing policy and the need for increased data collection to understand the extent of violation. And then the last one is there are other factors that affect the choice of housing, such as some individuals have said they rely on paratransit services or they need an accessible sidewalk, or if there's any store nearby the home or public transportation. Those are the most common response from the Detroit disability community. And then the next question would ask if we can go on to the next slide. Uh, the next question would ask, what are the advocacy groups saying that should be the top two or three 
remedy to increase housing stock. So the most common response was to invest in accessible housing, make sure new housing departments are readily available to accommodate residents with disabilities. Now, if we look back to the federal law, it said at least 5% need to be accessible and for people who are in wheelchairs, and also 2% for hearing, hearing and blind disabilities. So we want to encourage developers to think accessible design. In the previous slide, I mentioned a lot what it means, accessible design. And then the second common response was funding for home modification. There are some homeowners that can't afford the repairs or make the modifications themselves. They have to balance the budget between the income, the medical debt, or other expenses. So they would need some kind of help with home modification. And it depends on landlord too, if they have a budget and they can make modification for their tenants. And then the third was enforce fair housing policy and ADA compliance. So the only agency that has the authority is the US Department of Housing and Urban Development. They will collect complaints and do an investigation on whether the landlord or property owner violated the policy. So um, I'm going to turn back to my colleague, the director Schneider. Thank you. Thank you, director. Muted. Unmuted now. Okay. So uh, thank you, director Samp. So um, this is an important issue, and there is um, lots of need for us to uh, be more active in this space. And we're, as a department, um, have been uh, have been doing so in a few ways. So the first and not mentioned on on this slide is that uh, Detroit Home Connect, which is our website to provide an, an inventory and listing of uh, affordable housing options in the city of Detroit. We've been um, doing a lot of work to uh, have accessibility features listed on the developments, uh, which uh, requires us calling property managers, visiting sites to, to understand what accessibility features um, might be or are offered at those, those developments. Um, another thing that we're doing is um, on that website is doing an accessibility te technical audit um, to make sure that the site is as accessible pos as possible for users. Um, We've already kind of gone through a lot of that for a lot of that work and met many of the baselines, but we're trying to make sure that we're doing a more extensive audit of that critical site so that as we're able to list properties on that site, um, it is uh, as usable as possible for as many users um, as there are uh, residents in the city of Detroit. Um, so other things that we're doing in uh, the department, either that are in process or will be soon. Um, so I'll talk about the middle one first, uh, the Accessibility Home Repair Program, which is a program funded through the American Rescue Plan Act to uh, provide accessibility and emergency repairs in primarily, we'll be looking to do so in single family homes within the city of Detroit. This will be a new program for us. I'm really looking forward to seeing how we're able to address accessibility needs in, in the housing stack and make um, more accessible units. Those laws that I mentioned, they don't, um, 
they're not uh, applicable to the the single family housing that we have in the city of Detroit. So, you know, I, I know that in multifamily, um, many of those laws also um, don't require um, certain types of uh, bathrooms or barriers. Um, there, there may be barriers. So, but I know that that's even more true in the single family housing stock. So I think this is a really important program. We're expecting to start making repairs um, in the first part of that program this year. Um, another thing we're doing is an accessibility audit and leasing analysis. So uh, there are a number of laws. They also have applicability of various timelines. So some is 1973. There were changes in the Fair Housing Act in 1988 that changed um, some of the requirements around an accessible housing unit. And um, we wanna know what it, uh, how those laws have actually taken effect within multifamily housing uh, developments in the city of Detroit that are covered under those laws. And so, um, meaning what, uh, what accessibility features are offered, um, also how do property managers interact with tenants that might be seeking a un an accessible unit? How do they make them available? How does a person who needs one of those units find one of those units? So um, expecting to have uh, an RFP to do that work within the next couple of months. That's an important thing for us to do as I know that there needs to be further programs and policies developed. I I want to understand what the, the current framework that we're working with in the city of Detroit is so that those programs and policies can be um, address those those needs as we're seeing it today. And then last is um, as a entitlement community receiving HUD funding, we're responsible for affirmatively furthering fair housing as a city. And so uh, we're going to be expanding this work with uh, a fair housing awareness campaign for both residents, um, developers, architects. We want to make sure that people know their rights, people know what the best practices are that are emerging in in this space, um, and how we can try to use that to incorporate it into the work that we're doing. So those are the major next steps. Um, there's more work to be done, um, but this is the um, kind of framework of the work that we'll be doing within the next year. With that, I will stop. Thank you. And I, I want to uh, apologize to uh, Outlier Media. That's the publication that actually uh, did this report. It was Outlier Media. Um, and one of the names that we saw in Outlier Media, she's joining us today. She's not a name. She's an individual doing a lot of great work here in the city of Detroit, bringing uh, many of us, uh, making many of us more aware of issues uh, that we previously or may not know about outside of having these conversations. And that's Dessa Cosma. Uh, thank you for joining us. You are the um, founder of Detroit Disability Power, uh, which was founded in 2018. Uh, and you're quoted in here uh, indicating some of what we heard before. Many of the, the much of the housing stock that we have was developed uh, prior to the uh, ADA um, laws going into effect, but we have constantly uh, these new developments that are being approved by this body on a regular basis. So these are new construction projects. So uh, without me saying any more, um, I would like to turn the floor over to you, uh, Dessa Cosma. 
Thank you so much for having me today. Um, as was said, I'm the director of Detroit Disability Power, and I also just want to reiterate that I'm a resident of District 4. Uh, as was said earlier by Director Snyder, there are more than 128,000 residents in Detroit with disabilities. 70,000 of those residents are women, and more than 106,000 are African American. There are 76,000 of us with ambulatory disabilities, meaning that we have trouble walking. I myself have been a wheelchair user for my entire life, though it was not until I was 37 years old that I lived in my first accessible home. This has been absolutely life-changing for me, but it is not yet a reality for tens of thousands of my fellow disabled Detroiters. And in fact, I was struck by the presentations earlier today in this meeting where accessibility was not addressed at all by the developers until council and residents brought it up. I dream of a world where accessibility and affordability are at top of mind in all development projects moving forward. Across the country, less than 4% of homes are accessible, while more than 15% of homes include at least one disabled resident. So I always have to ask, are we designing our city, our state, and our country as if there are 20% of us with disabilities? Clearly not. In addition, the national affordable housing shortage means that even fewer housing units are both accessible and affordable. And we know that on average, people with disabilities have less wealth and earn less money than those without. People with disabilities deserve accessible, affordable, and inclusive housing that is integrated in the community and permanent. Therefore, three things we're advocating for. One, an increase in the percentage of accessible units that are required to be built by developers receiving housing trust fund dollars. Two, increasing funds for Renew Detroit and other home repair modification programs with specific attention to ramp building programs so people don't have to move into nursing homes or the suburbs to get their basic needs met. Currently, there are too many people trapped in homes, making, the, uh, making it unsafe for them and uh, denying the community the participation of those people who cannot come and go on their own. Thirdly, we need a comprehensive survey of Detroit's current accessible housing stock, as Director Schneider said, including information about price levels of these accessible units. This will help us understand exactly how big the gap we have is and, therefore, how to best strategically fix it. Lastly, I'll say that while focusing on accessible, affordable housing is, of course, the most pressing need, it's important that we're building accessible housing at all income levels so that we do not trap disabled residents in low-paying jobs just so they can keep their precious, rare, hard-to-get accessible housing. We have an opportunity to right the wrong of decades of disinvestment in accessible housing and in our disabled residents. I'm here to help you all make Detroit a place where all of us can live. Thank you. Thank you as well, and I would love for uh, you to send that document to us so that we can make sure that we keep that uh, in our forefront uh, of our minds as we um, deliberate these projects that come before us. I wish that uh, Member Durhar would have been here. Unfortunately, again, he had a uh, family, uh, he had a concern, emergency concern that, that did not allow him to be here today, and he serves as the Disability Task Force Chair. Um, but I'm sure he's probably watching somewhere if he has the ability to do so, but we'll do so afterwards as well. Uh, do we have anyone else that is joining us from uh, the disabled community, uh, any advocates that 
uh, indicated to us earlier that they would be here. I don't see any additional folks on the screen. Uh, Mr. Chair? Mr. Singletary, yes, sir. Uh, there, there are a number of hands, uh, not hands, pardon, uh, participants. Uh, Mr. Eric Wellsby, um, he declined the invite, but he, if he would like to participate, just has to accept the invite. Okay. Uh, Ms. Kitchen Spruce uh, is online as a panelist. Ms. Uh, Ms. Jackson is also online and just needs to accept the, the invite. Okay. Again, just want to make sure we are doing everything we can to ensure that every voice that uh, indicated, every individual who indicated that they wanted to participate in this uh, presentation had an opportunity to do so uh, before we proceed. Um, Director Snyder, I see your hand. Um, thank you. Um, through the chair, I just wanted to mention that James Foster from the Buildings and Safety Department is on in case there are questions related to um, uh, permitting and review of, of developments. Okay, thank you. Uh, very helpful. Um, Mr. Foster, if you can introduce yourself for the record, please. Thank you, and good morning, um, Mr. Chair Pro Tem Tate and Councilmember Johnson. I'm happy to be here. Um, I am James Foster, General Manager, Building Safety Engineering Environmental Department's Development Resource Center and the Plan Review Division. I just wanted to, I am here as Director Snyder mentioned in case there was any, any questions or um, uh, concerns regarding how we here at BCD Act when we do eventually receive these, um, these, these, these new housing um, plans. So let me just basically say that obviously BCD is the, um, is the building official for all, all, all construction in the city of Detroit, whether it's new construction, rehabilitations, change of use, alterations, et cetera. I, we do see a lot of, um, we do see a lot of the new accessibility uh, uh, concerns when it comes around to affordable housing. However, we certainly uh, make it a point to ensure that these contractors and, and, and applicants or consultants or architects, whoever it may be, are in compliance with the Michigan Building Code when it comes to new construction and certainly the rehabilitation codes and its accessibility criteria. Uh, and, and then second to that, um, we pay very close attention to these issues during construction. Certainly my team will see it in 2D when we are looking at uh, plan reviews and then our construction inspection team will see it in 3D and if there's any issues that we find to be a concern, we absolutely bring it to the attention, uh, either through a violation or a change of use. But the fact of the matter is that BC is um, absolutely aware of accessibility issues, both in interior and exterior. I think it was mentioned in the, in, in, in the previous presentation from Red Arrow, whereas many, um, many accessibility concerns are, happen outside. Uh, when you have egress and ingress into a space, whether it's a, whether it's a home, a business, a commercial space, it's very important that the exterior accessibility aligns with the interior. So we're very uh, sensitive to that as well. And I am here again to answer any questions. Thank you. Thank you. It looks like we've also been joined by another speaker. Uh, Ms. Kitchen Spruce, if you can introduce yourself for the record and you may proceed.
she just disappeared. Yes, uh, hello, my name is Atmika, which is Bruce. Um, I'm a disability justice activist. I also uh, work for co director of LEAD at Michigan Disability Rights Coalition, and I'm also a volunteer for uh, Warriors of Wales Metropolitan Detroit. Um, so I'm just here today uh, because I am a long-time uh, you know, activist in the Metro Detroit area. I'm also a Detroit native and have lived in uh, the city of Detroit for, uh, for a few years. And I'm just, you know, excited. Thank you for the invite. And also uh, excited to hear, uh, you know, the things that um, is possibly going to be happening in the future uh, based on my own experience. Uh, so the thing that was discussed today was dealing with um, a landlord that um, the housing condition wasn't um, uh, good at all. And so I had to, uh, due to the conditions, I had to leave. And so I see that as one of the uh, biggest issues is dealing with landlords. I guess it said before, uh, not making it accessible, um, not making it, you know, safe at all for families um, and people with disabilities to live there. So I definitely think there needs to be a crackdown and um, an enforcement um, on that. Also, which was already mentioned that I personally have experienced is the sidewalks not being paved. So I had to, and my family had to walk in the street to, um, you know, to to go. Um, I did not personally feel safe due to the uneven sidewalks and walking to the street. I have to walk a wheel in the street to get access to the bus or to, you know, um, the gas stations or stores that lived nearby. Um, I lived on a joy road. Um, between te Telegraph and Evergreen, so Wardell area. So to me, just based on my personal experience and advocacy, I see that there needs to be more enforcement uh, when it comes to landlords to make sure it's ADA um, accessible and safe, and then also uh, providing um, you know more safer environments where uh, you know people with disabilities if families can, uh, you know, um, walk or wheel down the street in different areas. Thank you. Thank you. And so uh, my question is, I mean, we often hear, uh, especially with these developers, we ask the question, and, and many times it's coming from the public, uh, are these units ADA compliant? And you hear ADA compliant in one sentence, and then you hear it another, ADA accessible. Um, and I want to ask uh, Dessa if you can kind of break down if, if is there a difference in, in your opinion between ADA compliant uh, units and ADA accessible units? So there's a couple of things that come to mind with that distinction and that question. One is that everybody knows the right answer to that question is yes, which means everybody says yes without thinking about it. I have been in buildings that have been deemed accessible that I could not access in my wheelchair. I have been in new builds in Detroit that were permitted um, and supposedly met code, but I could not access them in my wheelchair. So um, I think that there's 
another thing to remember here, besides that everybody knows the right answer is supposed to be yes and therefore says it, which is that the ADA and the, and the laws that Director Schneider ran through earlier should be the bare minimum. They're the baseline, they're not the top. So yes, we might only be required to have 5% of accessible units, but that is not stopping us from having 100% accessible units or 10% accessible units at the very least. Um, when we're talking about, and, and you know, I think Director Schneider would be potentially better at answering the questions about the exact codes or maybe BCED, um, but compliant, if we approach this purely from a compliance perspective, we are only uh, addressing part of the issue, which is, which is meeting the law so that we're not being sued. When in actuality, we should be focused on creating a Detroit where disabled residents can actually enjoy everything the city has to offer and fully engage. So when something meets code but is not usable, it might be compliant, but it's not accessible. And so if we actually want to invest in the disability community, if we actually want to um, reflect the reality that a you know, 20 to 25% of residents here are disabled, we have to go beyond compliance. That's the bare, bare minimum. Accessibility actually requires more of a conversation about how people use space, how people need space. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, was, that's been on my mind a lot lately is we can't just have one bedroom apartments that are accessible. I have a family. <laughs> people have families. Sometimes people have intergenerational families. So we need actually a variety of types of housing that actually make our uh, larger housing ecosystem accessible, not just quote unquote compliant. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, that kind of leads me to uh, Director Sam. And I know I looked at what we have here, the Office of Disability Affairs three-year strategic plan for the dis disability community. And in phase two of a housing goal, that's on page uh, 10, uh, and it says increase accessible housing. Uh, you list a couple of uh, items, metrics that you would uh, use to uh, get to that point of increased accessible housing. Uh, but one, I mean, I, Honestly, I, I know that I don't know exactly where you fall in the process when it, as it relates to HRD, uh, when it comes to these projects, these developments that are coming our way, um, in terms of advocating for not just, you know, in a um, strongly advocating, let me just say that, a strongly advocating the concerns of the disability community uh, as it relates to these particular projects. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, uh, the engagement that you have with both the enforcement angle, uh, departments, DC, of course, um, and then also ADA, uh, the, the uh, HRD. Uh, so we're talking about both sides, the beginning with HRD and the end of it, uh, those projects with BC. What's your uh, advocacy? What's your inclusion in that, those particular conversations? Because we often get a number of folks who come down here to city council, um, but we don't hear very much from you in your office. I'm not saying that you're not moving, not doing anything, but just need to know what that looks like. I believe the question was directed to me. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, this is Christopher Van Bacon. Regarding the three-year strategic plan, I have been working with HRD on different projects behind the thing, 
Like for example, when they were putting together the online platform to let different housing available to the community, I've been involved with that for about two years now. Um, so my role as the Office of Disability Affairs is to encourage collaboration between the disability community and the department. So I help with hosting community listening session and also advocate for um, uh, different projects. So when we talk about accessible housing, it's very broad. We want to be very specific. So when I started the three-year strategic plan, there were two different groups. One is to help the homeowners get uh, accessible housing or the renters to have um, a space that can they can live in. So um, as you know that the Office of Disability Affairs is only one person now have two team members. So we're not able to address every issue that's in the strategic plan, but I'm still working on with different departments when I can. So my role is more of encouraging the department to think about programs, think about changing policy and procedure to help improve accessibility and equitable opportunities. But with our director Snyder, uh, we have the home repairs program that's gonna help. And we have the fair housing awareness campaign. In fact, I'm already planning to hold some civil rights awareness presentation this coming year. So there's more projects that I'm working behind the scenes that will be announced soon. Um, I hope that answers your question, uh, Council Member Pro Temp Tate. Thank you, Director. Um, so, you know, we're right above, right abutting the uh, budget process. Uh, will you be receiving or at least requesting additional staff, additional funding for additional staff? Yeah, so if I understand, uh, Council Member Fred Duhall already requested an increase in the budget, and we received an increase last year. So I'm still waiting for hiring the staff. So that's in the process. That's the working progress. Okay. But that was from last budget period, though, correct? We're not talking about this upcoming one. Talking about the recent budget cycle, FY22. Um, I'm not sure what's the plan for 22, 23 fiscal year. Okay. Oh, the next, I'm sorry. I'm just, I sometimes follow the calendar year, so I have to get back to my office about the budget cycle this year. Okay. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Uh, any additional? Um, oh, I see Director Snyder. Um, th thank you. Um, to the chair, I, I want to make sure that um, there was your question about compliance versus accessibility. So, um, and no, I, I echo um, Tessa Cosmo's remarks about needing accessible housing across, uh, not just affordability, not just affordable accessible housing, but, but for all, because um, it's, that's a very important thing. But as far as compliance versus accessibility, so the, the ADA is, and Mr. Foster can correct me, um, um, is requires uh, development, housing development, multifamily housing developments of 
five or more units to be for common and public spaces to be accessible um, for someone to be able to uh, in a using a wheelchair to be able to navigate through a space for bathroom walls to be reinforced so that grab grab bars could be added. It's not the same as I think when some people think uh, an accessible unit having like a barrier free um, shower. ADA does not require that. And I think that it there is a misconception that ADA does require that. Um, it's only in the Rehab Act where we are funding um, developments with federal housing funds or in the Architecture um, Act that governs public housing where you start to see the requirements of an accessible unit. And there is a distinction there and I'm not sure how how widely that is is known. Um, I'll also say that I I'm not a lawyer by background. I have been trying to learn and read up and become more educated on this space as much as possible. But it is as much as I know about affordable housing policy, there's as much out there about that for me to learn on accessible housing. So if Mr. Foster um, can correct, if, if I'm incorrect, please, uh, please correct me. Uh, no, through the chair, uh, thank you, uh, Director Snyder. No, you're absolutely correct in saying that, you know, accessibility inside of a space is absolutely uh, critical. Um, however, as you mentioned, routes through a space in and out uh, from room to room. And, you know, we look at accessibility also even, even in, in terms of employees having accessibility to certain space. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about going off the rails about affordable housing. The fact is we look at everything, commercial, housing, small business, everything. So uh, we have we're we absolutely sensitive to those interior paths for ingress and egress or accessibility from one space to another, for an example, from a dining room to a bathroom. Uh, but yes, I, I mean, certainly we are we this is a great conversation uh, because I there are certain codes that, you know, our hands are tied because they may, we, we, we expect that some of these developers just simply be good neighbors and good people and provide, you know, uh, uh, to the market, some of the things that first, certainly what Ms. Kitchen was saying. So, uh, you know, go over and above what you can provide. And uh, certainly that we, we would, we look forward to working with the community uh, in doing so. I mean, we like to be in front of this. So we walk very closely with HRD in some of our pre-planned meetings that we have with developers and architects and engineers, and we bring it to their intention, but that we're not catching everyone. But yes, to Julie's uh, point, uh, interior, and I have to still stress, and I think Ms. Kitchen had, had, had spoke to it a bit, certainly buildings and safety can, can ensure that a applicant complies with accessibility in the structure itself but then you have to go outside or you even have to get into the building from outside. So we, 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 we engage our partners in DPW. Many times they always, they bring up sidewalk, changing grades, et cetera. So yeah, this is a, this should be a continuing conversation, but thank you. 
Thank you. Um, and we're going to be wrapping it up very shortly, but I just want to put a, put a, a point to this. Uh, the data that I have in front of me, it indicates that there are more than 650,000 people with disabilities in Michigan uh, who lived in poverty and were unable to afford just the basic essentials. Another point when you drill down to the city of Detroit, 72% of Detroiters with disabilities live below that particular threshold. And so uh, this is a hair on fire issue that we have to figure out as a community. Um, we want to retain as many Detroiters as we can. Uh, we want, as uh, Ms. Cosma indicated, we want families to also be in the city of Detroit, not have to uh, flee the city um, to, to get their basic essentials, uh, their basic essential needs uh, addressed. Um, any additional uh, comments, Member Johnson, before we wrap it up? Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you all so much for um, raising our awareness about all of these things. The, I think the thing that's most concerning for me, though, is to hear Dessa say that she has been into a building that was compliant but still not accessible to her. Um, and so it sounds like a number of things need to happen to be able to address that. And I think first would be some, some changes in laws um, so that facilities are accessible uh, and not just meeting that minimum threshold of compliance. Um, I'm not really sure how that happens though, and so I'd love to delve into that and maybe uh, Dustin and I can have a conversation about that later. She lives around the corner from me. Uh, and so I, I'd love to hear more about that, but I think one of the things that we can ensure that we do, because we have the conversation about affordability all the time, um, so we rolled out, or I think we're still updating the Home Connect Detroit website um, to make sure that indicates whether or not um, facilities or apartment units, houses, whether or not they are also accessible. Um, that would be extremely important. Uh, and so I think there are, th I, I hope this is just the beginning of this conversation because it sounds like there are a number of things that need to be addressed to make sure that we're providing for all Detroiters at various um, at various levels. Uh, and so one of the last things that I want to say, uh, one of the things my team and I have been working on is uh, because my chief of staff actually used to do home modifications um, in single family houses. And we've been looking at how do we expand the reach? How do we provide more support to residents for those home modifications? And so there are some things that we'll be doing and, and certainly would love to have my colleagues join in those efforts so that we're collectively doing it throughout the entire city um, to address more single family housing. Um, but Dessa, your point about single family accessible affordable housing and not keeping people in a position of um, trying to stay at an income level just to be able to meet the the criteria that resonates so much with me and i really want to have a deeper conversation with you about that um, but certainly appreciate you all for um elevating uh, this topic, and, and thank you, Pro Tem, for uh, having this discussion here today. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Member Johnson. So we're going to wrap up because, again, we still have a, a full agenda here, but this is the tip of the iceberg. We're just 
uh, now starting to uh, dive a little bit deeper into some of these issues that over the years, you know, we were preoccupied with everything and we, everything is still here. But we're now looking to chip away at some of those issues that uh, make life a little more difficult for Detroiters than it should be, um, especially here in planning and economic development. And, you know, quite honestly, we've been talking about parking. No one was talking about parking and how uh, potentially unfair these parking fees uh, for those individuals who um, are, are, are renting out these affordable units, uh, having to fully pay for parking or par pay for parking, period, and how it can bump them out of the affordable range. We weren't having that conversation until it was brought to us, uh, and now we have pushed back, and there's been some change by uh, these developers that come before us. So, you know, we're looking for, I believe, true um, affordability versus excuse me, not affordability, but accessibility versus compliance and uh, adjusting that, um, the, buck, the buck's going to stop with us. And so there may have, there will have to be a, a change in the way that we approach these items. And that, again, is why it was important to have this discussion. Um, we're leaving breadcrumbs. We're letting the folks know who are coming our way that the uh, discussion is going to be a lot more pointed. Um, and we want, more, want to see more as we move forward. But with that being said, again, thank everyone for participating in this discussion. Um, we will have a follow-up at some point and uh, look forward to additional uh, participation, but also outcomes from these discussions. Thank you all. All right. This will now close out our 1025 discussion and would now like to start our 1035 discussion. And it looks like Director Snyder is going to stick with us for this particular discussion here. Uh, it should not be long. I just wanted to make sure that this information was available to the public. We certainly have documents in front of us, uh, and I thank you for compiling this information. And this uh, 1035 discussion, line item seven, is about the comprehensive and exhaustive list of Detroit housing funds. Uh, there's press conferences that take place, and people will hear about a fund, and they'll hear about affordable housing. And then you'll have another press release that go out and you hear about a fund and housing. And it's just everywhere, which is good. We have opportunity out there. But the challenge for folks is how do you get beyond just the press conference and the press release or news story and make sure that uh, residents of the city of Detroit who certainly need uh, this information and could take advantage of it uh, actually have it. And so joining us again, we have Director Snyder who will walk us through this uh, comprehensive report. We don't need word for word verbatim because it is very extensive. And again, thank you for providing this to us uh, and making sure that it's available to the public. If you can kind of walk through the public, walk through the document, and um, I will turn the floor over to you. And I believe you've also been joined by Mr. Kelly Vicker. Mr. Vicker, if you can introduce yourself for the record. Good afternoon, Kelly Vickers with the Housing and Revitalization Department. Thank you, and if a clerk shall know that we, again, are still joined by Julie Snyder for the 1035 discussion line item seven. All right, Director Snyder. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, I wanted to start because this presentation is not just in front of city council, but also to the residents, just to make sure that we can be on the same page about affordable housing funding and finance and how it works so that we're working from a uh, same set of inform 
the same kind of set of information. So I'm going to start, Kelly will go into the uh, individual tools and we'll try to keep it moving uh, to keep the council session um, moving as well. Um, okay, so first off, I want to talk about you know, what is affordable housing. So housing is considered affordable when a household pays no more than 30% of their gross income on basic housing costs, such as rent or a mortgage, water, gas, and or electric. And if you are a homeowner, taxes and insurance would go into that mix as well. Today, we're primarily gonna talk about rental housing development financing tools. Um, so there are several categories of affordable housing. Today, we're gonna to focus the presentation on tools to develop what we refer to as regulated affordable housing, which on this slide is, is number two. Um, and so um, regulated affordable housing is contractually required to provide housing to lower income or lower AMI households at rents that would be affordable to those households. Um, the contractual requirements making that housing affordable is often tied to the financing. And that's why talking about affordable housing financing tools is so important because that's what controls the affordability of these developments. Um, so developing housing of any kind is a complex process. It requires many elements to come together over time. Um, and those elements are called the total development costs. Those include land costs, um, hard costs, such as uh, materials, uh, labor for construction, um, soft costs, which might be architectural drawings, legal costs, um, environmental review, cost of financing, like the cost of debt or the cost of, of equity financing, um, or equity contributions, and then some profit is, as well. Um, to make developments pencil to financially feasible, or as we commonly say in the industry, to pencil out, uh, the revenue generated by the, the rents from that building must be at least equal to the total development cost plus any ongoing operating costs necessary to maintain the building. Um, in Detroit, even market rate developments are, are rarely able to to totally pencil out. And that's why we have conversations about tax abatements and brownfield tips, et cetera. Um, and this creates what we often refer to as a financing gap. Um, in affordable housing, rents are lower than market rate, which adds to the financing gap and creates what we call an affordability gap, or the difference between the total cost of development and operations and the revenue that can be expected to be generated um, by the affordable rents. Um, so, um, because a helping housing market must provide uh, households, uh, affordable housing for people of all incomes, but especially uh, persons with or households with lower incomes, um, governments are in the practice of providing development incentives or funding programs to help cover these gaps. Um, they come from a variety of sources, the largest being low-income housing tax credits and state entitlement um, bond financing, which we'll go through in detail in a moment, um, but also local entitlement funds, such as the Home Investment Partnership, Community Development Block Grants, um, local state and local housing trust funds, um, and then some, sometimes, and in the case of Detroit, we do have available private affordable housing loan funds. Um, all of these are incredibly important tools. Um, so just to give you a sense of how we've uh, seen affordable housing development and investment happening in Detroit. So just between 2019, um, approximately $200 million of affordable housing funding, those sources that I just mentioned, have been deployed, meaning 
loans closed, projects started construction in that period of time. Um, that's about 27 housing projects and a total of um, 1,300 units. And I should note that that is both new units as well as preserving affordable housing, which remains an incredibly um, important thing for us to be doing. And you'll see that um, of those units that have been um, created or preserved, associated with that money, about uh, at least 75% of them um, are affordable to households at 60% of the area median income or lower. Um, the $200 million has come from a variety of sources, as I mentioned, but I'll note that nearly half of it, 48.6% has come from low-income housing tax credits, which remains in 2023 the largest source of affordable housing development dollars um, utilized in the country. Um, so while affordable housing funding is important to note on its own, it doesn't represent the entire financing picture. Um, the total development cost of these 27 projects covered by the affordable housing funds is $383 million, which is a nearly one-to-one -one leverage ratio. And I think that gives you a sense of um, the importance of these funds and the fact that, um, but for these affordable housing funds that we're going to cover, um, we wouldn't see this uh, the level of affordable housing development or preservation um, that we have. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Kelly to go over um, some of these programs in more detail. Thank you, Julie. Uh, so first, I'm going to talk about the competitive 9% low-income housing tax credit. Um, as Julie mentioned, this is the biggest and most important affordable housing subsidy uh, in the United States. It is a federal tax credit that is allocated by the state uh, through the Michigan State Housing Development Authority in Michigan. Uh, the credits are sold to investors for capital to construct and or rehab affordable housing. Uh, <clears throat> the state of Michigan gets $20 million in annual allocation, uh, which approximately generates as $170 million in capital for projects. Um, <clears throat> that $170 million um, those, through those tax credits will cover roughly 80% of the eligible costs. Um, for that project. So that's referring just to the affordable units, so it doesn't pay for any of the uh, market rate units or commercial spaces. And we'll move on to the next slide. Um, <clears throat> here we have uh, recent examples of 9% LIHTC projects in the city of Detroit. Uh, you can see in June of 22, we were awarded four projects. Um, there are a variety of types um, and across the city, um, very notably, I want to point out that <clears throat> almost half of the units uh, <clears throat> that were awarded through this are at or below 50% AMI. So it's always a, a major priority for us uh, to, to serve Detroiters all income levels. And I think this is a great representation of, of how we've been able to do that. On the next slide, I will talk about non-competitive 4% low-income housing tax credits and tax-exempt bonds. And these always go together uh, because 4% LIHTC is non-competitive. There's no cap uh, to the number of these credits that can be claimed in any given year. The only stipulation is that the project has to be financed with the use of the tax-exempt bonds. Um, those bonds uh, in the state of Michigan can only be issued by the Michigan State Housing Development Authority. And so they have uh, a <clears throat> volume cap limit to how many of those bonds they can issue in any, any given year, but 
they are able to meet that demand in every, any given year. So the 4% the program overall is considered non-competitive. Um, and uh, the, I wanted to point out the major difference between 4% and 9%. So whereas the 9% credits can cover up to 80% of the costs, uh, the 4% credit is not nearly powerful and will only cover roughly 36% of the eligible costs. This results in a sizable financing gap um, and requires, as a result, a much larger, um, generally, usually a much larger investment from the municipality um, in the city of Detroit for us. Uh, we, we, uh, we can also leverage those with gap funds that are available at the state, and that's what I'm going to talk about on the next slide. Um, the state has a few different sources of gap financing um, <clears throat> that they deploy in their projects. It's always paired with the 4% low-income housing tax credit. And so it's sort of one program, one application. You go through VISTA for all of the, uh, all of the subsidies that the state will be able to give you. So um, they, they hold a competitive statewide application process, and essentially they're looking for efficient ways to deploy these dollars since they essentially have um, plenty of bonds to meet the, the the needs of the developments in the state of Michigan. They want to prioritize projects that make the best use of those bonds first and uh, save the gap uh, funds uh, just so that they can spread those around and produce the maximum number of units. Um, so the city of Detroit is often uh, tasked with uh, funding those gaps and we will go into that next in this slide here. So the city uses several uh, tools to help fund those gaps, uh, both in and 4% deals, but obviously the, the gaps are bigger on the 4% side. Uh, so we use our federal entitlement funds. Um, mostly that means the home investment partnership program. The city receives about seven and a half million dollars per year. Um, we do supplement that with the use of CDBG um, but uh, the majority of the funding is, is through the home program. Uh, we deploy those dollars through a biannual notice of funding availability or NOFA, uh, and we prioritize the development and preservation of very low income housing units uh, serving Detroiters between 50 and 60% AMI, um, and also notably 15% of the funds in the home program are set aside to be used by uh, community housing development organizations. Those are nonprofits who develop, who focus on developing housing in neighborhoods. On the next page, we have the Detroit Affordable Housing Development and Preservation Fund, uh, or the, the Trust Fund. Uh, this is funded every year by uh, a portion of the proceeds from land sales. So uh, recently it was increased from 20% to 40% uh, of those revenues from land sales go into this trust fund, which supports Again, uh, affordable housing development and preservation. In this case, the, the funds have to be used, uh, the vast majority of the funds anyway, have to be used to support households at or below 30% of the area median income, uh, with the remaining 30% of the funds uh, benefiting households up to 50% AMI. These funds are also deployed through the same notice of funding availability that goes up twice a year. Um, and the, the amount that is available through this fund varies from year to year based on uh, how, how much so, uh, land is sold. Uh, in a typical year, that it, it might generate uh, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars 
Um, and we have seen in the past that city council will appropriate more than that into the fund. And so um, that is the case in the current fiscal year, there's $4 million in this year's budget uh, for, the, for the trust fund. Here are some examples of projects that have been developed uh, in the city using our gap funding sources. Again, you see a variety of types um, and they cover you know, across the city of Detroit. Um, we also have on here some home ownership, uh, which, we, which we use CDBG for in some cases. We can provide home ownership opportunities, which is also great. And on the next page, uh, this is quickly the notice of funding availability. Um, <clears throat> this goes out twice a year. The, the last one was just released in January uh, last month. Uh, the second one this year will uh, go out in July, it's anticipated. And the information for that can be found on HRD's website at www.detroitmi.gov slash HRD. And we also have um, other financing tools that we don't directly control but are aligned with our goals and work uh, sometimes with us and sometimes alongside us um, to help meet our goals in, in affordable housing. So the first one I'm gonna talk about is the Detroit Housing for the Future Fund. Uh, this is a private fund, uh, so it's made up of contributions from corporations and philanthropic groups and managed by the Detroit Local Initiative Support Corporation, or LISC. And it is especially useful for helping developments um, that are you know, not making use of uh, the low-income housing tax credit, for example. Um, and so it's a very useful tool. Uh, to get affordable housing with fewer regulations, so generally on a, on a shorter timeline, um, and has been very key in preserving the affordability at naturally occurring affordable housing units uh, across the city of Detroit. And so here you see several examples of buildings that have uh, been rehabbed and preserved as affordable housing uh, through the DHFF. Um, again, you see a variety, there's new construction, there's rehab, uh, historic rehab, and uh, and very uh, very high quality units uh, being generated there. On the next page, these are some other notable sources. Uh, the Strategic Neighborhood Fund isn't specifically an affordable housing tool, but um, it's a critical piece uh, to getting affordable units in our uh, strategic neighborhoods. Uh, and so we wanted to definitely highlight that. It's been a, a very important partnership uh, for, for kicking off uh, development in those neighborhoods and, and making sure that affordability is front and center in those plants. Also, we have here the Federal Home Loan Bank uh, Affordable Housing Program, or AHP. They provide small but very important grants uh, to affordable housing developers um, and, uh, and help us close some gaps and stretch our own dollars a little bit further. Um, and so, the last piece I'm gonna talk about briefly is affordable housing operating subsidies. So up until now, everything I've discussed has provided uh, capital to support the construction and rehabilitation, but just as importantly, and what, and as Julie mentioned earlier, um, these buildings have to be able to cover their operating expenses. And so they have uh, you know, debt to service and they have taxes and insurance and maintenance costs, and all of that needs to be supported by the rental income that's generated and with lower rents, um, there is a need to uh, subsidize uh, those operations. And we do that primarily through these two mechanisms, 
the payment in lieu of taxes is a specific tax treatment for affordable housing. And what it does is it takes the property off the ad valorem tax rolls and in its place, it's charged a fee that is structured as a percentage of the rents collected. And so in that way, the deeper the affordability, the deeper the subsidy offered because they're paying a percentage of those rents. And then very importantly, the project-based Section 8 vouchers, not only does it ensure that residents are only paying 30% of their income towards the rent, even in cases where they may not have any income, but it also ensures that the operations of the property can handle that. So the voucher payment standard will generally equal the fair market value of rent in the area. And so that allows the developer to not only pay their bills, but to actually take on greater levels of debt and thereby requiring less gap financing. So it works hand in hand, oftentimes with the affordable housing finance tools. And that is the end of the presentation. All right. Thank you so much. Again, the goal was to make sure that folks knew, just in general, the various funds that we have available in the city of Detroit, excuse me, to assist with funding. And, you know, the question I have is just real basic in terms of capacity. So I know we have, again, a number of programs. There's a lot of money that we saw that were inside of those programs. But can you talk to us about the, and I know it's not one size fits all, but kind of in general, because this is what I've heard from a number of folks, just with a number of our tools that we use to assist them. They're very thankful that they're available. But there is a time lag, so to speak, between when they apply and when they are actually provided this assistance. I know these, many of them are very competitive because the need in many situations outweighs the capacity that we actually have. So Director Snyder, if you can talk to us a little bit about that aspect of the, how do we close the gap? Or do you, maybe it's coming to me incorrectly, do you see that there is a, in general, a large gap between the time when someone applies as well as when they receive assistance from one of these funds? Thank you for the question. Well, most of the developments that we see are using a variety of sources. So they're using low-income housing tax credits, 9% or 4%. They're using our funds. They might be using the affordable housing program from the Federal Home Loan Bank of Indianapolis. They're really trying to bring a lot of different sources together. And that requires separate loan documents for each of them, each of those financing organizations to be doing whatever processes they have to make sure that developments are financially feasible. Because when we make these investments, we want to make sure that we're actually going to see an operating building at the end of it, because we have to protect city resources for a couple of reasons, one of which is if we don't see those buildings constructed, then we would have to pay those dollars back to the federal government. So it's a lengthy process. And I think there's things that we have done, can do to try to make that process 
quicker on on our end um but overall it's a complex process and one thing we didn't mention here is environmental review federal funds are require environmental review might require environmental remediation that that can add um several months to a review process so um it, additionally uh construction costs have ridden, risen pretty rapidly within the last few years um that's strained that's put additional pressure on our resources and um you know we just to give you some perspective at the beginning of this year when the, the budget was finalized for this year for the trust fund we had already the, the applications that we had previously received like we were we were pretty much committed with those funds from the very beginning because of the increased pressure increased need on affordable housing um, costs and so um just to give you some perspective i see uh kelly's unmuted himself so let him jump in thank you julie uh so i just wanted to add to that everything julie just said is spot on um but so one of the ways that we are able to sort of jumpstart development is through some of these partner programs like dhff and strategic neighborhoods fund where they don't have to comply with as many of those cross-cutting or any of those cross-cutting federal regulations like environmental review and so that uh, results in a shorter pre-development timeline and you know puts units online uh, sooner. So I think that's another reason why those are important programs. Um, and I think I just wanted to go back to some of the reasons why uh, affordable housing takes longer to develop. And it's basically because securing the financing, unlike market rate development, um, it happens much earlier. And so, uh, you know, you have to have a, a plan that, you know, rings the bells of all of those different subsidies that you're targeting. Um, and then you have to prove out that you can actually com compete and win those subsidies. So you're not able to get very far into that pre-development um, and developers, you know, aren't going to commit, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, doing a, a complicated design, you know, unless they feel very confident um, that they're going to be able to secure all the subsidies. And so um, oftentimes you see that an announcement is made that uh, a low income housing tax credit has been awarded. Um, and it seems like, you know, you're, you're waiting for construction to start, but, uh, and a lot of times that's really when a lot of the pre-development work, uh, begins. It's, uh, it's, it's really the beginning of a, of a, of a pre-development session. All right. Thank you. Uh, Member Johnson, any comments, concerns, questions you have? Now? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Just want to say thank you to you again for elevating this. Um, there are numbers of smaller developers who, quite honestly, I would say are not even aware of the various options and opportunities that exist. And so I think this is great information for them to be aware of. And now um, just figuring out how to plug into, you know, um, these opportunities. So this is very valuable. I've been texting folks and asking them to jump on the call if they had time for them to um, just know about the options to know about the opportunities because it's extremely important. I've talked to a number of developers who I think just aren't aware. And so having this discussion is, is extremely enlightening and uh, my team will certainly be reaching back out to HRD uh, to have some deeper dives and deeper discussions uh, with folks in the community. So thank you. 
Thank you, Member Johnson. And we were going to do the same. Uh, again, tip of the iceberg. It's um, time to start digging a little deeper um, because we can at this point. A lot of projects coming our way, and we need to um, figure out, and, and not just from the project standpoint, but from the, the, the end user perspective, how do we get the most bang for their taxpayer buck? Um, and we're going to, again, continue this conversation at a later date as well. But today, I want to thank you all for joining us, um, providing this uh, very, very, very useful information, and um, look forward to, again, extending that conversation at a later date. Be on the lookout. Thank you all. All right, this will now close out our 1035 discussion. We should now go back to the agenda and unfinished business. Uh, can I get a motion to discuss line items 8.4 through 8.7, please? These are all uh, various property sales that we uh, brought back for concerns. So moved. Thank you, ma'am. Line item 8.4 uh, is submitting Authorization for property sale at 11301, 11323, 11345 Van Dyke. I'm going to drop down to 8.5. This is submitting resolution authorization for property sale at 12710, as well as 12716 and 16139 Myers. And lastly, 8.7, uh, submitting resolution authorization for property sale at 22736, as well as 22740 and 22746 Finkel. And this one is in Brightmoor in District 1. So I think we've been joined by Mr. John Trung. And if there's someone from CPC, uh, Make sure I can't see it on my screen here, but if we make sure we have someone from CPC joining us as well so that we yeah, can. Mr. Chair, uh, there he is. Chris Gluck from yeah. CPC Staffordshire. Now we got the full screen. Thank you so much. So I know we brought these items back for various reasons. Uh, Mr. Trump, the floor is yours. Can you explain um, how we've clarified those issues, what those issues were? Yes, through the chair. Um, for item 8.4, uh, Chris Gulak and LPD had requested there was an old billboard sign and wanted to see if the applicant as part of the sale would agree uh, to remove that uh, the, the billboard, which they did. And so we, we added that language um, and contractually obligated to them to remove that within the six months. Um, no issue there. We just wanted to solidify that. Um, Regarding item 8.5, there was a, a, an issue with the language as it was written originally. It is a conditional use. Um, in addition, that it's uh, in a historical district. The applicant had gone through HDC's review um, and gotten the approvals. LPD wanted us to make sure to note that um, within the resolution, so we updated that as well. Uh, regarding item 8.6, there's uh, some uh, questions from the nonprofit and their operations, um, which we addressed with the CEO and LPD uh, for that. And then lastly, 8.7, uh, the sale of uh, the Finkel lots for an expansion of uh, the operating gas station uh, was also a conditional use, but uh, that language, unfortunately, in the first draft that was presented to this honorable body was left off. So. 
we had to revise that to include that as a condition of closing that they would receive that conditional uh, use. All right, thank you so much. And as uh, usual, we will ask CPC any questions, concerns regarding uh, what has come before us in terms of a request for approval on these items. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Chris Gulak, CPC staff. Uh, yes, uh, CPC staff is satisfied with the changes that HRD made, and, and we recommend uh, approval of the four land sale. Okay. So I will say for line item 8.7, took a look at it, and I got a couple of questions, and I apologize because I, I did not send those questions, and we didn't. I did not dig into it like I should have uh, in the past week. So I'm going to ask um, Member Johnson if we can get a Motion to bring back line item 8.7 in one week, please. So moved. Thank you. There's a motion to bring back line item 8.7 in one week. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. If there's a motion for line item 8.4 through 8.6. Um, Mr. Chair, or any questions? I'm sorry. Pr prior to moving forward, I just wanted to ask very quickly relative to line item 8.4, and I apologize because I'm trying to find my notes and not able to do that at this moment. But uh, I actually grew up in this area, and I believe when we reviewed this item, this there were several things that were looking that were being proposed on the site. There's a small building that's there, and so I was just trying to figure out whether or not they were looking to expand that existing building. Through the chair, um, yes, the applicant KJ Properties, um, they operate and own all their restaurants. They are the owners of that structure. Um, and I would have to go back to the applicant to see if it's uh, simply, you know, a, a development as a site with vacant land or an expansion of the, the physical footprint of the building. Okay, if you can if you can get that information for me, I won't hold it up, but I was just curious because there used to be an arcade when I was a kid, and it's pretty small. And so when I looked at what they were proposing to do, it gave me no indication that they were expanding it. Um, but I would love to uh, get that information uh, in regards to this project. But other than, other than that, um, move for approval on line items 8.4 through 8.6. There's a motion to approve line items 8.4 through 8.6. Any objection? Seeing none, that action shall be taken. Thank you. Uh, we shall take it to line item 9.1. A new onto new business, submitting resolution authorization for contract number 6004584. This is 100% ARPA funding to provide roof replacement and related construction services for up to 200 residential properties. Is there a motion to discuss and or approve? Mr. Chair, I'd like to um, move for a discussion. Motion to discuss, Member Johnson. If the, uh, I believe Heather Z is gonna be joining us. Please introduce yourself for the record. Hi, I'm Heather Zubintovich. I'm the Chief Direct Services Officer for Housing and Revitalization Department. Good morning. Oh, good afternoon, Member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, just want to just ask for something to be put on the record as it relates to the amount of this contract and because it says that it's up to uh, 200 residential properties. When I looked at it, 
I had to figure out what was actually happening here, but just want to make sure that the public is aware. Thank you, um, Councilmember Johnson. So through the chair, um, <clears throat> when we uh, go out to bid for these services, we often will put in um, a single requisition, um, even though multiple contracts can result from it. Um, and so that's uh, part of the um, the differing information here. So although this the description on the agenda does indicate um, up to 200 homes, um, that was the um, procurement that we did that resulted in, in four different contracts. Um, unfortunately, this was the fourth contract of four um, that had been originally awarded 60 homes. Um, when we went through the contracting process and, and trying to lock everything in, the contractor was unable to um, secure a bond um, for the amount that uh, we had proposed awarding to him. Um, and, and this actually was not a result of the city's requirements, so we actually had lesser requirements. It was the bonding company through which he was associated with that was unwilling to um, to work within the requirements that we were required. Um, so uh, as a result, um, his 60 contract, our 60 home contract has been reduced um, significantly. I think it's it's closer to 25 at this point. Um, and that is what you have in front of you today is a, a lowered contract amount um, with less properties that will be um, uh, responded to um, to ensure that the contractor could obtain bonding. And I, I hope that uh, answers your question. Please let me know if I've if I've missed anything there. No, it did answer my question. I just wanted to make sure that was on the record because this is a contractor in the city of Detroit, and we have seen others um, that have been approved for a greater amount. And so I just wanted to make sure people were aware of why this was a smaller contract with this this Detroit contractor. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, and so I'd like to make a motion to. A, Approve line item 9.1. There's a motion to approve line item 9.1 and send a formal with a recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Thank you. Line item. Thank you. Thank you. If we can take Member Johnson line item 9.2 as well as line items 9.4 through 9.6 together, these line items are regarding services concerning individuals experiencing homelessness. Is there a motion to discuss, please? Motion to discuss. Thank you. Line item uh, 9.6, 9.2, excuse me. Uh, contract number 6004849, 100% grant funding to provide case management and financial assistance services to households experiencing homelessness or living in a shelter. Line item 9.4, Get down to it. Line item 9.4, contract number 6004838, 100% grant funding to provide shelter services to individuals and families in experiencing homelessness. Uh, line item 9.5, again, uh, contract number 6004840, 100% grant funding to provide shelter services to individuals and families, families experiencing homelessness. Uh, and then uh, line item 9.6, uh, contract number 6004852, 100% grant funding, also to provide shelter services to individuals and in families experiencing homelessness. We have contractors of um, Operation Get Down as well as Detroit Rescue Mission Ministries 
uh, in these particular items. Uh, Member Johnson, any questions, concerns regarding these items? Thank you, Mr. Chair. The only question I had was um, if we could identify the source of funding. All right. We are, should be joined by Tara Lindsner. When you see yourself on the screen, please introduce yourself for the record. Tara Lindsner, Homelessness Solutions Director in HRD. Uh, through the chair, the source of funding for these contracts is a combination of emergency solutions grant funding and community development block, community development block grant funding. Um, those are the, the main sources of funding for these contracts. Thank you. Okay. I don't have any further. Uh, is there a motion? Motion to approve line item 9.2. 9.4 through 9.6. There's a motion to approve line item 9.2, as well as line items 9.4 through 9.6 and send to formal with a recommendation to approve. Seeing no objections, those actions shall be taken. Thank you. Line item 9.3, uh, this is contract number 6004205-A1. 100% city funding, this is amendment number one, to provide an extension of time to continue title services for Bridging Neighborhoods program. Is there a motion to discuss and or approve? Move for approval. There's a motion to approve line item 9.3 and send to formal with a recommendation to approve. See no objections, and action shall be taken. Taking us down to 9.7. All right, line item 9.7, submitting report relative to the status update on properties located at 3600 and 3564 Toledo. Uh, we did have an opportunity to speak uh, to uh, member Santiago Romero's office, and they did indicate that they are fine with the receiving file on this particular item. Is there a motion? Motion to receive and file. There's a motion to receive and file line item 9.7. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. Line item 9.8, uh, miscellaneous, Council President Pro Tem James Tate submitting memorandum relative to the secondary street signs ordinance amendment. Is there a motion to uh, discuss, please? So moved. Yep, thank you. We've got a few more issues we've got to uh, nail down with the uh, uh, law department, and actually would like to refer this item to the law department and bring back in four weeks. Uh, Member Johnson, is there a motion, please? So moved. There's a motion to refer line item 9.8 to the law department and bring back in four weeks. Seeing no objections, that action shall be taken. And then uh, on to member reports. That takes us to the end of the agenda. Member Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I uh, just want to share with everyone that on February 20th, uh, District 4 is hosting its monthly community meeting. It originally was going to be via Zoom, and now we are actually looking to secure a location because we have presenting before us uh, DTE speaking about the rate changes and also we'll have the entity that works with them uh, who provides programmable thermostats. Uh, so they will be present as well as Mr. Domwell, who's now the director of the Board of Review because we've received several concerns about assessments. Um, and we want to have Mr. Donwell present and in person to be able to submit any information via the computer um, 
because the deadline to file an appeal is February 22nd. So we are now in person February 20th. Uh, it will be at 5.30 p.m. We will confirm the location as soon as it's available, but just want to encourage anyone who'd like to be aware of any activities that we have going on in the office to give our office a call to sign up for our e-blast. The phone number is area code 313-224-4841. And then on Saturday, February 25th, we are hosting an expungement fair at Martin Evers Baptist Church. The address is 11111 Whittier. That will take place from 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Uh, and so we are encouraging folks to share that information so that we can help provide support to returning citizens to expunge their record. That is all for me. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Johnson. And wanted to let everyone know we are excited that we are bringing back our D1 satellite hours over at the Motor City Java House. Um, we were there for about 10 years and then this thing called the COVID pandemic happened and it did not allow us to have our satellite hours in person like we uh, have wanted to do. Uh, but we are back again every first and third Friday over at the Motor City Java House located at 17336 Lasser Road. Again, 17336 Lasser Road, 11am. Uh, the first meeting will take place this Friday. Uh, we do purchase your very first beverage. Now, after that, it's on you, but I guarantee you're going to want some more of what they have to offer, whether that's a beverage or food item. And we look forward to seeing those who would like to join us on Friday, February 3rd, 11 a.m. at the Motor City Java House. Again, 17336 Larson Road. There will be an opportunity to also uh, join us via Zoom, uh, so it will be a hybrid meeting. Uh, we'll, if you want to give us a call in our office at 313 224 1027 we'll send you that link in addition to that we will send the information uh, via gov.delivery to those who we have already in the system and with that being said just want to thank everyone thank the team thank uh, all of those who called in today and all the presenters for your participation and your patience and with that uh, member Johnson is there a motion to adjourn so moved. seeing no objections that action shall be taken that action shall be taken. Thank you. See y'all. Be safe. Be well.